0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we are on episode 119. My name is Tyler. Of course, as always, I am with Pratik and Nick. And today we actually have a special guest, Jamie, my longtime friend here. He's going to be talking about the Ukraine war situation as well. So just to give an introduction on that, we have from US to Ukraine with love. Biden makes surprise visit to Ukraine for first time since the war began. So U.S. President Joe Biden went on an unprecedented trip to Kiev early Monday, his first since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine almost a year ago. He reiterated America will uh, continue to heavily support Ukraine with additional military assistance. Biden also promised to impose more sanctions against Russia. Biden's visit represents a highly symbolic moment coming a day ahead of a planned speech by President Vladimir Putin marking the anniversary of the war. U.S. officials have privately voiced hope the massive influx of weapons to Ukraine, which includes new vehicles, longer-ranged missiles, Patriot air defense systems, can help Ukraine prevail on the battlefield and put Zelensky in a stronger position to negotiate an end to the war. But if it remains unclear what parameters Zelensky might be willing to accept in any peace negotiations, and the U.S. has been steadfastly refused to define what a settlement may look like, beyond stating it will be up to Zelensky to decide." We've all been familiar with this conflict. We thought it was going to end within a month, and here we are, a year later. Russia has suffered significant casualties. Of course, it's gone on both sides. Um, but today, we're going to be handing it off a little bit to Jamie to get his thoughts and insights on on this war. Um, so, just to start, what what are your thoughts on on the war in general, the state of the war right now, and where you think things are headed? And we could just go from there.
1: So, right now, it's obviously it's been a year, and right now is where we stand it's we're at a crossroads right now between either an all-out world war three where the lines are starting to get drawn between uh russia china north korea iran where basically they are going to contribute to russia at a military scale providing them ammunition tanks uh any arm armored vehicle personnel and potentially troops really russia is starting to lose a significant amount of manpower every day because it the war right now is like World War one it's trenches artillery bombardment it's it's basically no one's making any ground realistically I mean except for in the Donbass region where there is a little bit of fluctuation but most of the battle lines right now um, are pretty stagnant right now and it's just becoming a war of attrition until the spring and then once the spring starts um, probably I've I would say March maybe April you're going to start to notice the sides are going to start counterattacking one another whether it's going to be Russia re- renewing their assault in Donbass um, or Ukraine actually my personal opinion I think Ukraine is going to make their counter assault in the Kherson region and try to go for the Crimea as their ultimate goal to liberate and cut off Ukraine or Russia from Crimea There's that aspect of it. I also know. I don't know. You guys have been hearing about uh, the situation in Moldova right now with the government capitulating and all that. Correct? Uh, Vaguely. Yeah. You could give a brief. I mean, I've heard about
2: Uh, that. Putin's trying to take over Moldova.
1: Right. So there's a breakaway uh, state. um, I'm trying to get the name of it. It is Transnistria. Thank you. So they're more pro-Russian there. They have the separatists there, and I be- and it's a back door for Putin basically for Ukraine. He can open up another front without having to really do much. I do see something in that region happening, whether it's going to be Putin supplying the separatists there to open up a new front, or he goes into the into the region himself with some fresh troops and opens up another front to try to pull away Ukrainian manpower from. Uh, the Donbass or the Kiev region, because they also have Belarus up, you know, um, right next to them as well, that they've been using them as a launch point to launch troops.
0: Hmm. And do you think so at at the place we're at now, we just had Biden show up in Ukraine. That has to be a pivotal moment. Do you think that has any sort of impact? He did show up with 500 million dollars, but we've already given them tens of billions of dollars. So that just seems to be a continuation of what we've done. But do you think Joe Mm -hmm. Biden's showing up changes anything? Does it, you know, I mean, symbolically or otherwise?
1: Symbolically, yes. It shows that the United States is committed to future uh, prospects of NATO uh, members, like obviously Ukraine trying to get into NATO, but it shows that we stand by the NATO alliance and we basically will do whatever it takes to continue this alliance um, further against Russia. I do see, I think that Biden making his appearance will will basically get the other nato countries to contribute more i mean we've like you said we've already contributed i would say about close to 50 billion dollars in terms of aid both military and non-military aid and you can, and if you notice obviously all the other nato nations haven't really i mean they've contributed but not as much as we have significantly but i think that this is biden showing up is saying you know it's time for nato and the european countries to step up and help ukraine further um, with the leopard tanks or any additional munitions that we can provide them. Okay, and in terms of, you know, what's going to happen in the spring, you were talking
0: about that before, I just saw something saying they are actually going to start a new draft in Russia, even going after a lot of the citizens of Moscow, for instance, a lot of the people going to school, higher education no longer being an exemption for the war. Do you think that manpower is going to help them on the spring offensive, or are these just, just going to be untrained troops that are just going to be cannon fodder like we had seen with those kind of initial rallies of troops what are your thoughts on that
1: uh personally i think and given russians russia's military past there's gonna be more cannon fodder but if putin was smart enough he would take this new draft and actually train the troops or these people into into a conscript force where they have some basic skills and fight power to take on the ukrainian soldiers but Russia in the past has always just taken civilian numbers and has thrown them into the con- cannon fodder. I mean, look at world war II; like they would just take hundreds of thousands of troops, send them to Stalingrad. And it was like, all right, guys, you guys are going to charge forward and that's it. Go good luck. And they would do it and take, you know, tens of thousands of casualties and, you know, either succeed or don't succeed. And that's what they're doing here right now. They're, they're just launching every able body that they can to make some type of progress to keep, Putin's regime going any significant victory or small victory is a considered a great victory for the Kremlin hmm.
0: and so it's also pretty interesting that you the Ukrainians have been fighting for this whole year so they've actually been training in actual warfare the warfare they're gonna experience against the Russians I don't know how you train these Russian conscripts quick enough to make it have a significant impact enough impact and I think the new technology that's being introduced through the tanks etc from the west seem to be like a big you know push against russia like it it from all, from everything i'm hearing it seems like ukraine's winning ukraine's doing well but then i always in the back of my mind and just every once in a while i'll hear but you don't understand the just how many resources russia has who do you see that's, who you do know. you see taking this war i guess is what i'm trying to say
1: yeah that, and that's a good point to bring up because the press does favor ukrainian um the well the ukrainian on the west. And ukrainian side and yeah. right in the west side um I do see, I see it coming to it like a, a peace talk. Um, I could see Russia eventually, depending on how smart the Putin and his military um, generals are, they take a good amount of land from Ukraine and start pushing forward with the sheer number of tanks, personnel, fighter jets. Um, Biden at the pushing. front lines, of course. <laughs> right like a george washington uh, on the boat just <laughs> yep, yeah. yeah, with with the american flag and yeah. the sword pointing forward yeah so there i see i think this war might last another year and i think honestly it's going to come down to negotiation i think ukraine's gonna have to give up some type of territory but i know they want the Crimea back yeah that's the big thing right now because i know <laughs> russia is trying to hang on if russia loses crimea
0: it's such a big blow to putin the fact that he went in to initiate a war he already had the territory and to lose that territory after the war i mean they surely they're gonna kill him at that point right like what's the hey, alternative
1: area hey, hey, well yeah they'll dispose of him i don't think they're gonna kill him but i think they'll just kick him out of office and replace him with someone else um but if they lose the Crimea, you know, that's a huge bargaining chip for Ukraine to come to the table and, you know, try to end the war. So that's what I think Zelensky's doing right now with Ukraine. He's focusing to try to get the Crimea back, and, you know, he'll make it a long war of attrition in the Donbass region. And honestly, I think he might have to come to concessions of giving up that region to Russia, which obviously I know he said he doesn't want to do that, but Russia's not going to end this war, regardless of the casualties or anything like that.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, any questions you guys have for Jamie? Any more discussions you want to talk about Russia-Ukraine before we moving on here?
1: Yeah, no,
3: I would love to ask. So you compared the fighting to the trench warfare fighting in World War One. You know, obviously it's yep. been 100 years and we, you know, drones exist now. People have javelin missiles. <laughs> like, I, I get the comparison, but I would just, uh, wondering if you could comment on, you know, how we see the fighting day-to-day sort of changing from, how it used to be in traditional trench warfare and just what what things look like on the ground now
1: right so in world war one the trench warfare was was very sophisticated they had the firing line they had like a reserve trench and then you know your artillery trench. they had in world war one they had it all planned out It, it was very sophisticated here now it's just from the videos that i've seen from from ukrainian troops from bbc news Basically, it's just a thin trench where it's just enough to give these guys cover. Regardless of drones or anything like that, they have these little trenches where they can take cover. Because the region in the Donbass is an open, flat field. There's no hills. There's not vegetation around where they can take cover behind the forest or trees. Stuff like that. It's just open field. So, they basically, both sides just scramble to make quick trenches to provide their troops cover. Obviously, drones are the counterintuitive or the counterattack towards, um, trenches and, you know, both sides have been using the drones to just drop bombs on top of one another on the trenches.
0: So why wouldn't they be as sophisticated, I guess? Like, <clears throat> is it that, um, it just doesn't work for that environment, but it would work in a World War One setting? Is it that trenches aren't as much of a focus because of all this other technology? It, it's, yeah, it's not
1: more of a focus. Or do they need the techn- more
0: trenches and there's simply too many trenches to build to build them deep or have multiple trenches? I don't know.
1: Right. Well, one, the ground is a lot harder in Ukraine because of the the winter and everything. Um, Mm. And they quickly assembled these trenches. There's not like – there wasn't planning into it. in World War I, when trench warfare began, both sides started to realize, like, this is going to be the warfare and this is how it's going to be fought. So they began to immediately invest in the trench warfare and the infrastructure behind that. Here, it's just let's get our guys some cover and wait till the spring comes around, so then that way, when the weather does get warmer and our tanks are able to move across the ground, um, we will continue, you know, we will resume the counterattacks with uh, armored divisions and personnel and go from there. It's just more right now of a Band-Aid for the situation, you
0: know? Gotcha. Yeah, it seems like more guerrilla tactics than... Well, it is a special military operation. We can't forget, this isn't a war, so it Uh, makes (laughs) sense that they're not... (laughs) fully investing into these no i'm just kidding but awesome uh thanks for the insight jamie are there any final thoughts any last messages you want for people that you think are just important to know overall
1: the one thing i will say for people that are very curious about the the war and everything is in the next three months keep an eye on the news in terms of who is going to be whether backing russia like with china right now they're trying to you know Yeah. yeah Supply them with one another with either non-lethal aid or lethal aid. But in the upcoming months, watch the news in terms of who is going to help Ukraine and who is going to help Russia. Because at the end, you know, if this war does, or well, the whole world, I should say, gets escalated into this war, um, you'll start to see the battle lines being drawn. And then you'll see this is going to take more than another year. If everyone gets involved, and then have, obviously it's World War Three.
2: I do have one question for Jamie. So... Um, wanted to ask, so there's been this big talk about how America doesn't want to put boots on the ground, but we've done a lot more than put boots on the ground. We've delivered them missiles. We've deliver, delivered them ballistic missiles. We've done everything in our power to literally help Ukraine in defeating Russia. Right. One thing I wanted to ask, though, is do you foresee there being other countries, including the U.S., ever putting boots on the ground in this war? Because Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have both come out in their own ways. Joe Biden hasn't said it directly, but um, Kamala Harris called it crimes against humanity. Do you foresee mm-hmm. that um, any actors along with America will ever actually put boots on the ground to assist either Ukraine or Russia?
0: Well, don't say along with America. We haven't put boots well, it, on no, but with the ground. No, we- but if...
2: Other, if um, our allies do decide to do something, I'm sure America will step in too. Fact is, we haven't done it yet. And because America hasn't taken a stand to do something, none of the other Western allies are going to do anything until we step in. So my question is, do you foresee anyone ever stepping in apart from Russian or Ukrainian troops on the ground?
1: I, So yes, I do. But the thing is with that is that in order for that to happen one of two things has to happen. Obviously a direct threat from Russia, from like Poland, you know, Russia basically threatening Poland uh, invasion, like one of the NATO countries. If it gets to the point where their jets are getting into their airspace or if they try to, you know, go through their border and then around Ukraine, I think at that point NATO will enact article 15, which then we will all step up and put boots on the ground. The second theory is where I see where boots have to come on the ground is if um, Moldova collapses, and then that puts the threat of Ukraine from the rear, and then also Romania and any neighboring countries nearby. I think at that point, we will have to start putting boots on the ground. Because, I mean, right now it's a proxy war, you know, we're helping Ukraine and everything, and we're trying not to put boots on the ground. But it it is inevitable that this will happen, that we will have, not just the U.S., but NATO will have to put boots on the ground. Well,
0: I don't know if it's inevitable, but... I think a big issue is like in Moldova, let's say it collapses. What if they try to store missiles there and like missile systems, air defense systems? Would that be a threat to NATO? Is Would that justify crossing the red line? You know, that's something I'm curious about. For me, in terms of like popularity and elections, I don't think it would be good for the Biden administration to have to send troops over there. I think they're, they're actually riding the... Uh, pretty fine line and they've done a solid job and i think they've gotten a support of a lot of american people so in terms of in terms of voting power i actually think it's in biden's best interest not to do that but he has talked about the hard red line of dino
2: i do think one benefit though is just the fact that again if you look at it from a political perspective i talked about this on our last episode um that russia is a common enemy that both republicans and democrats can get behind you're not gonna have many voting republicans that are gonna be like why are we at war with russia Because the fact is that Russia has always been America's common enemy since the nineteen forties. And that's like the one enemy that like Republicans and Democrats have always hated with a passion from the get-go. So it's not like I just feel like if we were to go to war, it wouldn't necessarily hurt Biden all that much if we were to put boots on the ground. If anything, you may even he may even win some veterans that may like, you know be happy that we're doing more to help Ukraine. I don't know, but I feel like that is a potential talking point. But again, I don't know. Well, warfare
0: does, you know,
1: solidify typically whatever administration's in office. So whether boots are on the ground or not. Exactly. And I think right now with the elections coming up and everything, it is in the best interest of Biden to postpone putting boots on the ground, unless obviously the war escalates and, you know, we get dragged in, but he's doing his very best right now to not put boots on the ground right now. So, and it is in his best interest, like you said, for the election. So we'll see maybe in 2024, um, obviously, if this war continues, and then whoever takes office, if it's going to escalate even further, or if we're just going to continue what we're doing.
3: Uh, Jamie, can you actually just one more comment? Um, So you mentioned Moldova, and sort of in the in the block of sort of after the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, you had the frozen states of Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Transnistria, etc. There was one more, I always forget the fourth. But essentially, like, why does this matter in the broader scheme, especially when we've already seen that Russia staged part of the invasion through Belarus already? So why does sort of the Moldovan part, which for folks who don't know, it's sort of on the uh, southwest of Ukraine, as opposed to the east or the north, where Belarus is I'm just wondering why that front would be significant where if they've already staged part of the invasion from another country Belarus why wouldn't we have essentially like why would we get involved at the point of Transnistria or Moldova
1: Exactly so um the thing with that is is it, it's a new front for Putin obviously he's going to have to move some troops but they have so much you know troops and um military equipment that you know it will put a dent in their Main offensive numbers, but it would hurt Ukraine more because then Ukraine is going to have to divert more troops to the Moldova region or that border because they don't really have anything there. They were under the assumption that okay, Moldova stays. Obviously, the breakaway state we kind of have to worry about, but there's only 2,500 troops. Maybe we just put a thousand of our uh, conscript troops just to hold you know hold the line just in case they try to do anything. But now that this that the Moldovian government has collapsed and now this opens up for Putin to try to help that breakaway state or even try to take Moldova, that will open up a new front and you're going to have to see tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops having to be diverted to that region and now Putin will have, okay, he's got two other fronts, the Belarusian front or the Donbass front, where he can, depending on where Ukraine obviously takes those numbers from, he can launch an assault and you're going to see... significant gains from the Russians at that point because of all the troops they have to divert or, or sorry, the Ukrainian troops having to be in divert. You're going to see Russia make all that progress. And
3: that's on the troop side. You know, our next story is going to be related to China yeah. and how they're backing up Russia. But I, I briefly wanted to tease out the idea about the weaponry because I think everyone sort of takes for granted that the U S military industrial complex is going to do what it's always done and end up supplying weapons basically into infinity. But um, there have been a, a few articles coming out sort of questioning You know, one, are they really staffed up to actually do that Two, you know, essentially like when, you know, can we keep supplying weapons forever? It's sort of what's your sense of, you know, is the U.S. like increasing its weapons shipment? Just how do you see Ukrainian troops actually being supplied by the United States in lieu of boots on the ground? How do you see uh, sort of our weapon systems? You know, are we going to continue to rash things up? Because right now we're just depleting the warehouse. But at a certain point, we would have to restock our stuff. And I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on that piece of it.
1: Yeah. So well, obviously we are one of the biggest militaries in the world. We can keep supplying Ukraine with these or with our military equipment. I know our stockpiles are running low, but also remember, too, I mean, we have all these general defense contractors within the United States. We have Lockheed Martin. We have Raytheon. Um, we, you know, we just could do a defense contract with one of them to resupply the javelins, the the missiles, or the uh, howitzer rounds. Um, so, I think personally, you know, we can keep supplying Ukraine at this rate, and we'll be fine. Uh, Ukraine obviously has to provide the personnel, and then we would have to train them. But the Ukrainian morale is at an all-time high. I mean, a year—if you thought a year ago we'd be at this stage, I would have laughed. I would have said no. Russia would have just steamed over Ukraine, and that's it. But clearly, that hasn't happened, and Ukrainian resolve is at an all-time high. So, as long as they keep providing the manpower, we'll provide the military equipment and um, training to for the uh, for the Ukrainian well, army. And I, I actually
0: I have something to comment there. I think that's true as long as we don't start some other conflict. I mean, things are heating mm-hmm. up with China. We're about to talk about China, but you know, yes. Taiwan, Taiwan, the South China Sea, all that like if we're if we're splitting our own, you know, fronts, let's say, in terms of engagements we have across the world, that might actually have to limit our supply just based off sheer necessity and, and importance of where we're allocating our resources. And we've also exactly. seen a major
2: decline on or what was going on with Iran as opposed to what was going on during the Trump administration, but I wouldn't be surprised if Iran was like heavily supporting Russia. Russia and Iran have been allies for like decades so that's another front that we have to worry about just because america and iran mm-hmm. have always had like a tumultuous relationship from the get-go and it got more increased but, during But Patek, the last what would the
3: front be in iran like no, if, you're just, you're saying, just supporting so, supplies but it's not an actual front china would be potentially a new front
2: that's true but you would have you would potentially if something was to happen and let's say that this war did escalate. I'm just saying Iran is like an ideal ally of Russia, which that's another area that we would have to concentrate in just to make up for you know our presence everywhere. Because the fact is that we can't have um, you know, all of our forces dedicated in all the different locations. And I think that's an right. important part is just because Iran is like a country that you don't really think of much. Plus right now Afghanistan is controlled by the Taliban. So like I'm sure that it's if there was a really big conflict that did come out of this, it could be a major world war conflict because Iran and Afghanistan are both basically member, friends with Russia. So that's another factor we have to put in.
3: Well, I don't think Afghanistan is that that close with Russia. Well, they did invade them. Not They've really have really no, 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 domestic I'm, what I'm, what There's I'm no love is, there.
2: No, no, but there's a. That's true, but there is a connection between Iran and, and the Taliban. Iran is one of the sure. mi- major financiers of the Taliban and the Taliban have like, you know, taken over the country after so many years. So, if Iran was to support Russia, I'm sure that by, you know, by, by connection, the Taliban would also support Russia, plus the fact they don't like the US anyway. They hate us more than they hate them. I mean, that's the fact. It's true, is, but they that almost that have
0: nukes, which would you know change up the strategy of everything going yeah. on here. They're, they've almost fully enriched their uranium, but that's another
2: that's another conversation. Let's, let's go about, to China, guys. Let's We're talk about China, about Russia. Let's talk about China. Pratik. So China calls for Russia-Ukraine ceasefire as claims to neutrality are questioned. So China calls for Russia to reach a neutral political settlement to the Ukraine conflict on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion, as Beijing is coming under pressure, increasing pressure from the United States and its allies over its growing partnership with Moscow. In a newly posi- released position paper Friday, China's foreign ministry called for resumption of peace, peace talks, an end to unilateral sanctions, and stressed its opposition to the use of nuclear weapons. The 12-point document is part of China's latest efforts to present itself as a neutral peace broker as it struggles to balance its relationship with Russia and the West. China's claim to neutrality has been severely undermined by its refusal to acknowledge the nature of the conflict, and it has so far avoided calling it an invasion, as, and its diplomatic and economic support for Moscow has continued. Also, CIA Director Bill Burns told Face the Nation on Friday that we're confident that the Chinese leadership is considering the provision of lethal equipment. China has refuted the claim that they are providing Russia with lethal military assistance. However, with China's statement about a Russia peace plan, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky plans to meet Xi Jinping, a meeting he claims will benefit our countries and security in the world. So with that, what are your guys' thoughts? What is your thoughts, Jamie, on you know the potential inclusion of China into all this and the fact that they're not taking a full-on stance of being in support of Russia?
1: So for this, actually, I... I'm actually shocked because I would think that China would be fully behind Russia in this invasion because they want to see what Putin can get away with because obviously they want to do what Putin is doing in their own theater with Taiwan. Um, so they've just been kind of been playing it on the side. But, but the fact that China has reached out with a 12-point bulletin peace is the furthest any nation in the world has done anything for this war. So it's kind of shocking that this, you know, out of nowhere China's like, hey, we can broker a beast deal and Zelensky's kind of on board with it and, I mean, Putin obviously you know, it's like, oh, this is great that China's backing me up, but he obviously wants all of his concessions of, you know, all the regions, the Crimea overthrow Zelensky and stuff like that, which I don't think China is going to do I think China's going to try to, in their peace treaty, try to get some concessions of Russia, but maintain that their Their good relationship with the West because obviously the West is a huge trading partner with China, and China cannot afford to lose the Western business. Can that, you guys that's ever actually...
3: see the United States and China going, you know kind of dibs on brokering some sort of peace talks. I feel like it would be untenable at the same time. you know if China if Russia was you know sort of open to this, if Ukraine, I mean, they're going to go visit China this coming week if they're open to this, it's sort of like if China is seen as sort of brokering a peace talk here. That I feel like that would be untenable for the United States to even tolerate China being seen as the one to bring an end to this conflict. So well, I, I'm just kind of curious. But go ahead, Pratib.
2: I do yeah. think that China is a very intelligent government as opposed to all these other nations that are doing involved in this conflict. Just it's because China government. knows... That a majority of their economy, everything that China does, everything that gives them real power, if anything, is connected to world trade and the economic connection of things. And they know that if they decide that they would, um, you know, be full on in support of Russia, they're going to lose trading partnerships. They're going to lose a lot of, you're going to lose a lot of money. And on top of everything else, they're going to sabotage their relationship with the United States and the other allies that we have and the fact is that sure on paper it sounds like yeah america and china have always had bad relationships but in the end of the day america china relies on um america and a lot of these countries to buy their stuff and the fact is that that's what's built china to becoming the big bulldozer like you know power broker that they are today and the fact is that china has much more to lose if they do something stupid than russia does and frankly even if america does something Because the fact is that China is so interconnected and their whole like economic stratosphere revolves around world trade and finance. So it's actually interesting that the fact that China is doing something because the fact is that if China decides to become gung-ho in the side of Russia, if anything, it's just going to hurt them more than everybody else because Russia is just going to be Russia and America is going to potentially look at other like, you know, places to buy stuff from or just try to build stuff or make stuff at home. But China doesn't have that capability to do that because their economy relies heavily on trade.
3: So Tyler and Jamie would love to get your thoughts on this. But first, in classic show fashion, I have to disagree with Pratik on this. So agreed that China cares (laughs) about global trade and what have you. But I would argue that they don't care what the United States is doing on this. They care what the Europeans think. For example, Europe, one of their big differentiators between the United States and China was going to be, okay. look, We are going to have good trade relations with the Chinese. We're going to get closer. We don't have any of the same hangups that the Americans do. And that's actually going to be beneficial for us. We're going to get closer as trading blocks, and we're going to succeed as a result of that. Now, with China picking sides and supporting Russia in this, it's sort of seen as, okay, you know, this war is going on in Europe's own backyard. And now it's like, okay... You're not our friend anymore. You're against us. And you're seeing the German foreign minister starting to criticize China in the way that na- they never would have two or three years ago. It just wouldn't have been on the table. And so I think that's the differentiator, not the United States, not China looking at what is the U.S. presidency doing here. I think they're looking at the Europeans and going, oh, crap, we could actually torpedo some of our relationships with this. But Pratik, I see you laughing. What, what are you thinking?
2: All right. So I was doing research. And the reason why does. I made my claim is this. <laughs> So in terms of exports by country, if you look at you know the governmental websites of China and how their exporting capacity is and who they export the most to, America's number one. Uh, we, they export around 577.13 billion dollars worth of goods to the United States, followed by Hong Kong, which is their um, is basically owned by China at 349.44 billion. This is as of 2021. And then Japan, is at one hundred and sixty-five point eighty-two billion, and South Korea is one forty-eight point eighty-five billion. Germany is the first European trading partner that they have in terms of the top eight, and they're number six. And they um, export around one hundred and fifteen point eighteen billion dollars worth of goods to Germany. The reason I'm bringing that up is primarily yeah, but you're not taking the of, EU all in all totality, Pratik. That that is fair, but you have to EU, treat it as a
3: block. It's not just one country in one country.
2: But in the end of the day, the United States is still the number one trading partner that China has. And the important part about that is is that no matter what has happened, I mean, sure, our relationships have been bad. When Trump was in office, you had a whole tariff war going on. But in the end of the day, both of our economies are so heavily connected that if something happens to either or, it kind of hurts both parties. The fact is, though, is that for China, their influence... Is heavily relied upon by the fact that they have such a large economic enterprise, and the fact is that the reason that it exists is because America is heavily buying their products, as opposed right, to and all I'm not other saying the US countries doesn't in matter. terms of value. Yeah, yeah. I I'm guess just we're just going to on which that's one's a more important. Factor. Yeah. I'm just saying, in my opinion, I think that's more of a factor because I don't think China is stupid enough to let their own political ambitions get in the way of them being able to succeed and potentially, you know, be able to survive as a whole. And I think all of that stuff is connected primarily due to their economic prowess more than everything else. Sorry, that's just how I'm looking at it.
0: What about from like an influence perspective? It's just interesting to me that you have now China coming out with the, this peace deal because, you know, if you want to be the hegemon of the world, you do have to broker these sorts of deals. Do you think this guy this signals kind of like a move towards where China is trying to go in terms of trying to be that international presence, the one that people rely on? to manage these situations instead of the U.S. Because I think you're both right. You both have good points. Um, to Nick, I would say you can't discount the fact that China is such a heavy trading partner of, of us, but at the same time, you can't discount the EU because that's where this war is going on. China's looking at them as well. So, um,
1: uh, Jamie, any thoughts on this? I think that China is trying to position itself to be the the broker for international conflicts. I think that they're trying to, this is like their first test run, and I think that they're going to try to take the initiative to show everyone in the world that you know we're not, you know, a power-hungry country. We try to bring pa- peace and stability um, within the world, which obviously, as we all know, is well, kind of it's a lie. interesting
0: because they're supplying. They say non-lethal aid to Russia, but they're actually supplying Russia right now. We talked about how this is a proxy war. It's not that they're neutral in this war. That, no. That's just what makes this even more interesting. I guess in the end, what I see the advantage for them being is if they're able to broker a deal and Russia isn't too angry and Ukraine isn't too angry and the Europeans aren't too angry,
1: they'll come out on top. And I think that's kind of what they're trying to go for here. Exactly, and I think personally, too, that when this war began and everything, China was... They didn't condemn it, but they were neutral. They said, we're going to stay neutral, you know, because... because they had to, the, because of the U.S., they, I mean... <laughs> because because of NATO, yeah, they, with their trading, with, like Batik said, with all the trading partners and everything, they had to remain neutral. But now it's getting to the point where they want to see Russia make some advances, so yeah, they're starting to supply them with... Well, originally they were supplying them with non-lethal aid, basically some medic stuff, you know, food... Uh, blanket shit like that, Um, but now they've gotten to the point where, okay, we've done all this, but now we have to start supplying them with the lethal weapons, and they're at that point now where they have to do that, because for them to brokerage a deal or to come up with a peace deal, Russia has to make some type of gain, because if Russia doesn't get any gains and Ukraine does beat all of Russia and pushes them out of the country... They have no foot to stand on. So,
0: and it's it. Just to note, non-lethal aid. It also includes like bulletproof vests. So it's not all things that aren't used in combat.
1: There is con- some combat equipment. It's just not like missiles and ammunition. Et exactly right. It's not. It's not like the stuff like that or tanks or like the big equipment. You know. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you
2: mean with the bulletproof vests. You
1: know, yes. it is non-lethal, but it is. Tiny and, be before,
2: <laughs> and, and before we end the topic of, you know, the Taiwan uh, of the um, Russia and China and all this stuff going on, I want to ask one thing to Jamie. So before the war mm-hmm. started, one of the big conversation topics was the fact that Russia has nuclear weapons and they've said multiple times that they're not afraid to use it if anybody goes out of their way to help Ukraine. Right. That was part of the right. big conversation. The thing is, is that America hasn't put boots on the ground but America has done so much more than doing that. Like if anything, we've done everything from providing them support, we've given them weapons, we've given them missiles, we've given them literally everything that they could ask for plus more, and we've given them so much money and aid. So the question is, is that obviously I don't want there to be any type of war or anything like that. Obviously it's scary to even think about nuclear wars and nukes and anything like that to that degree, but do you ever foresee something like that ever being on the table? Just because Putin has pointed to it, Biden's reason to why not putting group troops on the ground was connected to the fact that Russia said that they would potentially use nuclear weapons. So what are your thoughts on this before we end the topic? So
1: with the nuclear arsenal that Russia has, I don't think they're going to use it. I think they know I think they're just using it basically as a threat verbal a threats and basically saying you know if you do this you know oh we're gonna use our missiles but yet they haven't they haven't they, they haven't really escalated that part of the military so you don't yet. think putin's
0: I mean, crazy enough to do it is what you're trying to, like I don't think this I, is the thing I don't I think a lot of yeah. people do think Putin If he gets ousted from power, he's going to be assassinated. One way or the other. Taken care of, let's say. Um, So, for his protection, let's say he nukes Kiev or something. And it just instantly, like, they're able to push in. Um, Obviously, they can't, like, inhabit a city that was just nuked. But they're able to get rid of the enemy forces. The worldwide stage is horrified. But maybe they actually could take part of Ukraine. Is that, you, you just think, is that so unreasonable, I guess? Because that's something that I think that's what
1: people are worried about. Yeah, and I think honestly, too, the thing is is that Putin, as much as everyone says Putin is an idiot and stupid, he is a pretty smart guy. I don't think he's going to um, use missiles or nuclear missiles in this war because if he does that, then everyone in the world is going to basically come after Russia or anyone for that matter that uses nuclear weapons. Anyone who uses nuclear weapons in a war, it just gives them it just opens up the floodgates of let's just attack, you know, because they just used a nuke. Um, you know, now we're not going to trade with them. Now we're going to attack them because now, you know, they're using nukes against yeah, even though it's but, considered an enemy, but now they can use it. But even if to we're justified else. in using nukes,
0: I don't know if we would respond in kind with nukes if they nuke Ukraine. Just for political global stability, I'm not sure that we would respond that way. That that makes me nervous. I'm not sure what the line is. I'm not quite sure what our what the Department of Defense's uh, you know plan is for this. But if to me, Ukraine it's very If Ukraine was a
2: member of NATO, then I would argue um, against what Tyler is saying. But I kind of agree, too. Just because America has done a lot, but we haven't engaged in that full scale of anything. And I don't think America has, you know, the ability or the, you know, the persistence to do something like the that. The will. The will. Yeah. Because if that yeah. happens, then it's just like literally World War III starting. And then Biden will definitely be out of office, which I don't think Biden would will know, probably that, win re-election. I don't I know. That's true,
0: dude. I think people like to keep whoever's in
1: power for wartime because they're so yeah. afraid
0: of what, like, who I, might come I, next. Yeah, I mean, do. I mean,
1: I mean, FD, FDR almost got elected three terms. No, no, he was World elected four terms. Well, I mean, well, yeah, he oh, sorry. was in office well, forever. Yeah, but he, until died he died before <laughs> 14
2: years. <laughs>
1: the monarch. The monarch. The one, the one American monarch we had. Well, okay, yeah. so
3: even if nuclear war isn't too likely, what do you guys still think of the posturing? Because um, in Putin's speech a few days ago, he said that they were going to be suspending Russia's participation in the New yeah. START. Nuclear Arms Treaty, and so new start for folks who don't know that sort of puts a limit on the number of uh, deployed intercontinental range uh, nuclear weapons that both the United States and Russia have. And just for some more background, you know, before the pandemic, we had this pretty long-lasting bilateral relationship where we would send inspectors to Russia, Russia would send inspectors here, and we would sort of look at each other's nuclear arsenals. You know, that's been suspended. It doesn't look like that's going to be resumed anytime soon. So. Even if nuclear war isn't too likely, he's still posturing like it's something that he keeps sort of putting on the table as this continued threat where, again, as more time goes on, he's just kind of adding things that he's just, you know, kind of withdrawing from the nuclear arms stuff. And he did this announcement, by the way, right after Biden went to Ukraine, literally right after Biden showed up there, he said, oh, by the way, we're going to withdraw from this nuclear arms uh, agreement the next time around. So just wondering what your guys thoughts are on that.
0: Do you know you what's know, funny? When when you say that, I, I immediately think of a guy walking into a store, a convenience store, with his hand in a pocket in the shape of a gun, pointing it at the, cash, the guy behind the cash register saying, I'm going to shoot you if you don't give me the money. But we don't actually know if he has the gun or if he has bullets or if he's willing to pull the trigger, any of that. And I think that's kind of what's happening here. You say political posturing. I just think it's leverage. Like, what other leverage does Putin have? Um, He's trying to justify this war to his people constantly. I don't know how that propaganda battle is going. I don't know if he's winning there. Uh, But to say that they're under such threat that they might need to use nuclear force, maybe that does inspire some patriotism within Russia. I don't know. Um, Strategically, if they do it, we had talked about the consequences are going to be horrific. Even China, who has been tepidly supporting them, could not support Russia if they did use nukes. I think that's part of the thing. A lot of their alliances, their strongest alliances, would fall apart if they did. So it really is, you know, the emergency scenario. They would have to hit the button. They have no other choice. It really comes down to, is Putin so deranged that he's willing to kill however however many people, not for the aims of Russia, but for his own personal good of burning it all down. Almost like Hitler in his bunker of, like, just, you need to take the city, you need to kill me, you need to kill all of us. That's the only way I'm getting out of this.
1: Yeah, and I agree. I, I, I see Putin being like that, you know, just keep using nukes as... As as a bargaining chip, more so than anything. Like when it comes to when it when it comes to the, these peace deals or whenever when it comes down to that, he's gonna just say, "Hey, I have these nukes. Give me what I want," or you know, "I will unleash them." And then people are gonna say, "Well, you know, either they're gonna not take the bluff or give in." And most people will give in because no one wants a nuclear war. It's true, but you know what we do love inflation especially (laughs) after covid
0: so (laughs) (laughs) who doesn't i like it that was the best transition
2: all right So, so love it i love it former obama economist says little if any progress made on inflation under biden so the former chairman of the president barack obama's council of economic advisors economist jason Furman, warned that the economy is overheated he said we have made little, if any, progress on inflation. There is little, if any, reason to expect a large showdown, slowdown going forward, he said. In 2023, for example, all food prices are predicted to increase 7.9%, with a prediction interval of 5.5 to 10.3%. So, um, this was what it was part of a study. So, the consumer price index CPI rose 6.4% in January on an annual basis, hotter than expected, but remained steady compared to last month. While prices remain above 6%, They were down sharply from the 9.1% surge in June, which marked the highest inflation rate in almost 41 years. A study released in January 2022 by the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis concludes that 2.6% of the US inflation rate for the 12 months ended February 2022 was due to COVID-related fiscal stimulus. This represented about one-third of the rampant 7.9% inflation experience for the period. So there were three takeaways from the study. First, the enormous increase in the money supply caused by government spending in the major driver of the high inflation, which has been compounded by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Second, this Fed show study showcases that the modern monetary theory, MMT, which has been embraced by many progressives, has failed. Under MMT the idea is the theory is that the government should continuously create fiat currency to borrow print money and spend freely without worrying about inflation and the problem is that with the heavy massive increases in spending that has happened over the past 2 years what we can see is that it has directly led to inflation. And then the third big part of the study was the Federal Reserve um, is worried that it re- um, there's going to be a record pace of raising interest rates, and that's going to lead to um, higher inflation overall. And what has happened is that the inf- interest rates hasn't necessarily decreased inflation in any way. If anything, with for, um, federal spending not being curtailed, it's only increased. And with the debt um, ceiling potentially being increased, many economists foresee a never ending inflation uptick, which may result in continuous interest rate kikes every quarter. So what are your thoughts on all this stuff? Do you guys have any um, opinions about this before I go on my rampage on things? Just let me know. Yeah.
3: All right. Since you're going to go on a rampage, let me just say one more thing that Jason said. So he said, quote, yes, it's more likely than not that inflation falls from its 4.7 percent pace, maybe even into the threes. But there are still forces going in the direction. Like you were saying, 6 percent inflation is more likely than 2 percent inflation. And for that, he cites um, uh, whatchamacallit extremely tight labor markets, and its lagged effects on inflation as, as a big sort of indicator. And so he's not saying it's 100% terrible, but he's saying likely, you know, it's more likely that it goes up than it goes down. But still, I don't know, looking at at least the diagrams that he posted online in that Twitter thread that you uh, quoted from, yeah, it doesn't look great. Um, obviously, things seem to sort of be stabilizing out. Like, we're certainly not going to be going back to 9 or 10% inflation just based on his analysis. But you know anything above <laughs> like what we're at now is just not tenable people are tired of it you know, it's a losing political um, issue for the Democrats. I mean, Bill Clinton realized this in the 90s where he had this uh, pretty famous quote. He's like, what are you talking about? That my entire effing election, you know, is is the result of the economy and how that does? Like, he he was pissed about it. Um, But the Clinton administration really focused on it. So it seems like the Biden administration for all the stuff they're trying to claim on Ukraine and other things, I like what the administration is doing in general, but inflation has been seen as a huge failure of the administration. And it's unlikely that they're going to get it under wraps before the next election. And even if they do, you know, it's not going to look good for the Democrats because people have already gone through the pain and suffering of COVID. And with this inflation, for example, the price of eggs, price of gasoline, which isn't as much of a factor anymore with gasoline, but definitely price of eggs and every, everyday household items that you end up getting, you know, that, that's still hitting
0: people. So, I don't know. It, it is, but can't they still blame Trump? Can't You can always blame they Trump, can. right? Like Because you got to think about like where the inflation can't, you have COVID and all that, or blame COVID. Aren't there excuses mm. Democrats have? So because I understand there you excuses, get blame but
3: blame. I just think it's been too long at this point, you know?
2: Yeah. So, Maybe. what I would say to I'd like to think that what, what other thing I would say to that too is that if this was in 2021, then I'd agree with you that there was going to be some things that would have to do with the Trump administration. But now all the blame basically falls on Biden's shoulders because he is the president in office. So, One thing I'll say with this whole conversation is just that inflation and interest rates matter to everybody. People always talk about, you know, this is not that important. I care more about what's going on in the Ukraine war. I care more about these social policy issues. I care about criminal reform and drug violence. All Look, I know scary. we have Jamie
3: on here, okay. right? Yeah. And we're talking about yeah. Ukraine, but like, <laughs> does the average American really care more about what's going on in Ukraine compared to inflation? No. I don't think they no. do. I, I don't. I think the, if I go to the
0: supermarket and see my chips are ten dollars instead of six dollars or something, I'm gonna be pissed off as an American more so than oh, there's a war going on. Uh, like, it's not that. Yeah. It, it's not that it takes away from the significance of the war. We're just a little far removed from it. And I think that's the problem yeah. when you go w- w- through these kinds of wars. We don't have boots on the ground. American lives aren't at risk. My investment, it's a monetary investment. It's significant, but it doesn't affect me day to day. So I think the inflation is definitely, you know. And um, it's
1: Jamie, know, it yeah, sounded important. like you were going to add to that. Yeah, I, I was going to say with the inflation and everything going on, I think, and, and obviously with the war in Ukraine, I think the American people are more concerned about the inflation. I do think the the American people are going to pay more attention to this election, not just because of it's, Oh, let's get rid of Trump. Um, and, you know, put in a Democrat, it's going to be, who's going to be able to resolve inflation. Who's has the best plan to curve this inflation rate and bring it down. Um, because yeah, everyone in, at the grocery store, I go to the grocery store every day for food and all, I, I hear it every day. The price of water has gone up. The price of eggs has gone up. Bacon's gone up. I mean, it, it, you know, people are starting to cut back on their spending and, and, well actually just buy the main
0: interesting thing. note and i just looked this up consumer spending has still been increasing month which is crazy to me like that's part of the thing with inflation it's like americans are still
1: spending crazy well, amounts obviously of money obviously it's inflation even as but that's no, my I, I was gonna i was gonna say about that 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 report is mostly for the consumer spending because obviously inflation has gone up but that's because of the prices of food has gone up so people obviously have to spend yeah. money for food so i just mean with interest rates
0: you would expect at some point for it to no so know, it doesn't not be so the case i but I, no. I have
2: a lot of things to talk about this so sorry about my random intro what i'm trying to focus ahead, ahead, on <laughs> is <too>. just that <laughs> overall the challenge is that whenever inflation goes up that's going to lead their value of the dollar to go down and then when you expound compound it with increasing interest rates to combat that inflation that's going to change how how consumer behavior happens so what usually ends up happening is that whenever you have any business, any type of operations, operating expenses are going to skyrocket whenever you increase interest rates. Because every, every company, whether you're a small business to a big business to a corporation, everything that they do is basically at some point funneled through a loan. And bigger companies have bigger loans from bigger banks like Wells Fargo that only really finance big companies like that in terms of like millions of dollars of loans. So now what happens is whenever you increase the interest rate, If it's not a fixed interest rate, if it's like fluctuating and if it's floating, then the challenge is, is that whenever that cost goes up to, you know, in terms of the interest rate, that's going to potentially um, reshape how they're going to do business. So then they're going to raise their prices on certain items. And I've seen that too in my own business. So you're going to raise prices on certain things that you're selling just because you can't make up for the cost that's coming with the new interest rate hike. So the challenge is that if you look at it from a bigger scale, all that stuff compounds down. So if it's like more expensive for Nabisco to sell cookies, it's going to eventually hit, your, hit you whenever you go to the grocery store, when you go buy their cookies, you might see less cookies and you're going to see a higher price for those cookies. And the challenge with any of this stuff when it deals with inflation and interest rates is that inflation is caused by a variety of different things. Like um, George Soros, there's this book called The Alchemy of Finance, talks about this theory called reflexivity. And it's like supply and demand are not that concrete like classical economics wise that they talk about because it's like every every individual is going to think th- differently about different things. So it's like, there's no such thing as like, what is, what is a perfect demand and perfect supply? It's this equilibrium price that no one ever hits. But the challenge is, is that whenever you raise the interest rates um, to combat inflation, essentially, you may lead to more inflation too. So it's like one of those things, it's like unless you curtail for federal spending, you're always going to have the same challenge. And the idea is, is that the modern monetary theory focuses on that you need to focus more on the currency, you need to more focus more on the fiat dollar because the paper dollar can be given whatever value which will potentially resolve all the other issues that you have. But the challenge is, is that whenever you play with the inflation and when you play with interest rates, is just you have to make certain decisions to slow down spending. You need to make decisions to change up how you're doing things because it's a never-ending cycle and it will always consistently harm one another because, sure, when inflation goes up, the value of the dollar goes down. Some of that stuff can be connected to um, the current administration's passion towards helping out these unions or potentially raising the minimum wages throughout the country. All of that stuff is connected plus the fact that you can't find labor right now so you're paying more money to hire the labor that you're finding. So things like somebody being like a boat driver or a truck driver that's shipping goods from one place to another is going to be paid more money and hence that's going to show up in terms of your price that you see at the grocery store or wherever you're buying. Whether you're buying a good, whether you're staying at a hotel, whether you're going to a restaurant, all of that stuff compounds in and you can see that to some degree. So I just think this is a really big issue it has many different elements and the challenge is, is that no one really knows the answer to this problem but The consensus that most economists have is that they need to focus more on the monetary policy of things as opposed to the modern monetary theory, which is like the new Keynesian way of looking at things, which focuses more on fiscal policy. But what are they they going to tell us,
3: to be honest, like what are they going to tell the American people or the average voter? Because one of the things in that in that theory is that as you talk more about inflation and as more people have anxiety and fear around inflation, the risk of inflation actually rising increases so it's like the more people think there's going to be inflation the, the more likely it is that inflation actually occurs so it's like how do you actually message this effectively or like what is i don't know essentially like, what do we actually thing, do for this the you know?
2: only things you can really do and this is what i'm saying is you can reduce reduce federal spending which i don't think that's going to happen other thing that you can do is we have this talks about the debt ceiling increasing if you talk about the debt ceiling increasing and you actually increase the debt ceiling that's automatically going to add to inflation and is going to lead to another interest rate hike the other yeah challenge, but for example though, if you look you at can't what you Jake- solve that then i know I'm not I'm not criticizing anything that he's saying, and I know that that you know you need to aid Ukraine. No, but if you, you didn't, it stuff. would be
3: much worse. It's like, yes, if you do, it's mm, it's not the best. But if you don't, way, it's gonna be bad. No, it's gonna way, be worse the other but, way. But
2: no, no, but you're spending more money. So you're giving them more money in aid. You're giving them more money in other forms of aid in terms of financial benefits. So the challenge that you face is that is just about how much money you spend. The more and more money you print, more and more money that you spend, and the more and more um, that costly it is to get a loan, whether it's a home loan, mortgage loan, you know, any type of loan, business loan, college loan, all of that stuff is all influenced by these interest rates. And the challenge is, is that you have to make certain changes on how you do things. The Biden administration needs to take two three steps back. They need to let the economy do a little bit more to benefit itself. There's no right answer to when that equilibrium price will be hit. And there's also no answer to when is the right time to change anything. But you have to gradually change how you do things. And you can see there's been successes in past presidencies when you've had this issue like i mentioned george soros and alchemy of finance at that time it was during the reagan administration they made changes with some laffer curve and other policies that were going on at that time to curtail the amount of federal spending to potentially reduce the level of inflation which was heavy during the jimmy carter administration same thing can be happened with bill clinton which always the most famous it's the economy stupid quote it's like you've had changes that have happened the challenge is is that currently The people that are in charge love spending money on a lot of different things. And when you talk about forgiving student loans and stuff, that's only going to increase the cost of doing business and is going to potentially hurt consumer confidence because it means that the value of the money is going to go down.
3: Let's be real. George H.W. Bush did more for the economy than Reagan ever did. But anyway.
2: I'm not I'm not worried about Reagan or Bush Sr. I'm just looking at it from the larger context of things. Is that? But just like pointing to, to
3: it as like a huge win. I don't know.
2: I, I don't think it's a win or a loss. I just think it's a problem that you have. And unless somebody solves this problem, it's going to continue to compound. And the fact is that interest rates have never really been this high ever. And the fact that. Wait, that's not true. It's been during interest the Jimmy rates... Carter time period. But since then, you haven't seen interest rates at this high of a level and inflation at this high of a level together. And the fact is that sure, one is trying to reduce the effects of the other, but the problem is that until you reduce federal spending as a whole is just going to compound and when interest rates keep going up that's going to potentially lead to an economic decline as a whole because with all this big how you know building stuff and with all this like you know people buying houses everywhere and all this stuff going on it's the challenge is that all of this stuff is built around loans and when people can't pay those loans back because interest rates keep hiking up that's going to be a major problem for everybody It's just something that is like, this is what kind of what led to 2008 decline, but this is like much more than that, except the economy is much better than it was in 2008, which is why you have heavy levels of inflation. But at the same time, the inflation is all like messed up because it's created by a lot of different factors, whether it's the supply chain, Ukraine, and the fact that you're paying people more to do the same quality of work and the value of that is led to higher prices on literally all the items that you buy
1: Hmm. critique i just want to add one thing i'm sorry real quick yeah because what you you, when you said in 2008 the you know the economy is better than it was in 2008 but in 2008 it came crashing down like no one knew this was happening this was all that was behind the scenes you know and and here you know when it happened everyone scattered here right now everyone knows this is happening we're all on this a train that's on fire right now and i guess that we have to figure out is how to put this fire out on this runaway train but obviously this train looks like it's going to crash soon yeah so the question uh, is is when
0: the my, my question is why isn't the inflation reduction act going to fix all this oh I mean, my god
1: we all know spending it's hundreds in this of
0: billions of dollars true, on yeah. that Why isn't going to fix you're inflation. Never, but like we, we talk about this, the administration get is going to get blamed, but they're not the cause of all of this. And to some degree, they have they have they're implicated a little bit. But so much of it is just world events, that's, geopolitics. That's any COVID inflation excited.
2: theory, though, Tyler. But in two thousand eight, no, you I can't... Understand. No, no. But what I'm saying is, look, in two thousand eight, voters are going to vote when it all like fell down. Fault, George probably. W. Bush was in charge. The people you blame whenever two thousand eight happened is the Bush administration. Democrats won on the fact that the economy declined under the Bush administration because well, of Iraq. Yeah, like I said, and people will vote on that. The side mean it's true. of this is that if this thing actually crashes, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of Republicans that are going to blame Ukraine and what's going on over there, which has led directly to this because we have spent a lot of money. I don't think that it's the same level. We've also I don't made a think lot of that money. they're really connected. But the fact is that you usually always blame the person in charge. And in this situation, it would be the Biden administration. So they need to fix certain things. So then they're able to win their own reelection. Why do
0: we pretend like we don't make so much money from our military industrial complex and us shipping all this old equipment we weren't even gonna use anyway? The fact that we were able to offload that inventory because is because it doesn't awesome for
2: impact us. the regular common person. And until you reduce interest rates, interest rates are the key here. And when interest rates decline, even if inflation is whatever percentage, you be okay. But the fact that interest rates have hiked the is up so better. much critique, to the idea inflation that is half
3: the problem. Interest rates to cool the economy.
2: I thought that yeah, was that point. is. Yeah. Isn't that the but the fact idea? is that no, no, no but the, the fact thing, is so. that they don't <laughs> the help each other. One, one or the other. <laughs> no, no, but <laughs> it's, it's complex. This is why you have all these monetary theorists that have done a lot of things, and this is why Keynesians, these like people like George Soros, the classical economists, all have challenges with this, and especially when you have this new modern monetary theory stuff going on, especially since 1973. is just the fact that it's too many different things going on, but the whole idea is, is that... The whole modern monetary theory, um, theory about this is that inflation happens when your economy is at full employment and whenever the economy is actually doing really good, which has led to inflation. The challenge with that whole theory being a theory is just the fact that it's not because the economy is doing good, it's because of all these other forces that are in play. Plus, there's been a big influx of spending that has happened since 2020 to now, which can be resulted from negative things and positive things. So this is just a very complex matter where interest rates could be that potential burner if interest rates go up to that high of an extent. And interest rates have been hiking up a lot, and that's take, the scary part. who's thinking? Part do of you like all.
3: on this? What? I'm very curious. Who's thinking? Because you talked about the Keynesians, Dude, you talked about. I actually, the monetary, I the actually
2: think George Soros is a very intelligent guy. That book, I mean, *Alchemy of Finance*, is one of the best books that I've ever read. I think Keynesians have some good ideas, but the fact is that their whole idea is about aggregate spending, aggregate demand, aggregate supply. And the whole challenge, which the classical economists always had, is the fact that there is no such thing as a perfect supply and demand. There's also not a perfect invisible hand. There is an invisible hand, but it's only invisible to a certain degree because every single consumer has different expectations and looks at things differently, and that's going to be shaped by you know what's going on. And there's like a feedback loop that happens, and that's I actually think George Soros is the most intelligent, uh, intelligent talking point on this topic actually. But the fact is that nobody likes George Soros, so there's George Soros.
0: Well, Republicans don't. Well, I mean, he's a big financier of Democrats, but Democrats
2: are all about Occupy wall street and want to shut down people like george soros Why well, i never understand why these people vote democrat but hey beats me man look at warren buffett hardcore democrat well
0: well you know democrats they're just pegs on a board they're falling in line who else is a peg on the board but our boy george santos so what's been going on with emily i think we're on week six now so we're coming to yeah, the I end fatigue, i don't know what's this
3: gonna... is uh if we get one more story you may be
0: losing the bet <laughs> yeah man yeah so it jamie sucks. uh basically george soros he's basically uh, have you guys seen the movie catch me if you can with leonardo dicaprio you mean george santos yes. don't a, get yeah. him confused with george yeah, Soros. George, San- <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, george santos there's a guy named frank abignale he's a real guy who basically just found him way his way into a million different occupations he was a doctor he was a like a pilot, like all these random things. But anyways, this guy is the exact same to me. And this week, a new story came out where essentially um, someone he had been living with committed credit card fraud, and then he actually testified in court and used his his address and said that he worked at Goldman Sachs. Of course, didn't work at Goldman Sachs. The address he provided was the same address as the residence of the person caught for a credit card fraud. Um, he was investigated a question. He wasn't you know prosecuted for any of this, but it just goes to show... I think he's the most interesting character, by the way, which is why I love these stories. It's not outright political, but the fact that someone like this can exist and get away with it and somehow manage to get in office to me is just kind of kind of funny. So what are your guys' thoughts on george uh, George Santos continuing in the news? Being a nuisance for the Republicans and maybe a boon for the Democrats to some degree, who knows?
3: Well, I think it takes some of the uh, pressure off MTG, who's calling for a national divorce and thinks that if you know Democrats move to Republican states, they shouldn't be allowed to vote for five years. I mean, complete lunacy coming from her. But, I mean, George Santos is the gift that keeps on giving. You know, he's got the comedic relief. He's got all these stories. I think that's part of it. It's like you hear one story about, you know, him being a drag queen in Brazil and coming back and marrying a woman but also being engaged to a guy. And then that engagement never happened. And then you know he's like oh i went to i went to this college the and then the college it. says he never worked he he was never a student here oh i worked at this <laughs> company the company says he never worked here it's like I, I just don't know what he's actually done i feel like i know more about the fake version of him than the real version and whenever these real version stories come out i don't know they're always fascinating because again like you said he lied about this stuff but the friend was Um, the, the friend pleaded guilty to fraud in this case, but for George, it just seems like he just keeps popping up in this weird, these weird Mr. Bean scenarios and it like never fully comes back on him, but he's just a constant character.
2: And again, yeah,
0: they should make a movie about him. I think it'd be really good.
2: (laughs) It'd be, it's like inventing Anna. I don't know if you remember that Netflix show, but I I didn't
0: see it. I know you recommended it.
2: I do think that in terms of all this stuff, I've said this in like the last few episodes, no one really cares. There's not going to be a single uh, Republican I, I can't. voter. Don't no, no. Say everyone but say Tyler. No um, Republican that votes in the elections. Cares. Except
3: for Long Island. Oh, in the election. Yeah. Sure, oh, those guys probably elections. lost. But I'm saying in the general. down ballot matters, yeah.
2: Now, what I've been saying forever is that George Santos is a dot. He has no positions really in terms of committees. No one likes him. Republicans and Democrats hate him as, as a whole. If anything, this might be the most bipartisan issue is how much everybody hates George Santos. The challenge with it is that he's gonna be there for a few months and then he's probably gonna be primaried out. I don't necessarily see the Republicans winning that district again, but at the same time, I really think he's a dot. He's not that important. All these stories are investigations. Some of them may be true. Some of them may be false. These had so many like sketchy stories that have come out, but the guy is like a fraudulent resume walking in, you know, walking into Congress. Like he's nothing about him is true. And the fact is that everything that keeps coming out about him all these stories, Most of these, we're going to see if, like, it does lead to anything. But at the end of the day, I don't foresee George Santos ever being an actual important person. If anything, he's just a dot that has been given a lot of, like, you know it's uh, media presence but the fact is that no one likes this guy and if anything republicans are going to be doing be doing whatever they can to try to make this guy not a part of the conversation and the media is going to do whatever they can to make him a part of the conversation because i mean they're not only bought office. by the other side but at the same time like you just a benefit that you well get it's a good story it's something
3: that you know people want it, to it engage is. with it's ridiculous and it's fine yeah
1: as much as I want to say that this guy is just a total fraud and is just, you know, totally out there, th- this news is something that the American people can, you know, laugh at, you know? I mean, with everything going <laughs> agree, on actually, right now— yeah. You know, like with everything going on right now, this is like a little bit of a comic relief that like, you that's know, it. we do have people out there that are like this. And, you know, it's funny to hear what they're getting themselves into and stuff like Took that. Me, so, I mean, obviously, he shouldn't the be The fact Congress, that he could get elected. It reminds me of, of Anthony Wiener.
2: Yeah. I couldn't remember that guy's name. But it was <laughs> oh, like, my God. Anthony Wiener. Like <laughs> everyone just remembers like, that Everyone guy. is just like, what's going on? This guy is messed up. That's Why actually, is this guy there? And eventually he's out.
1: He's he's one thing away from yeah having his wiener being shown. No, but National Wiener TV, so. had
2: more power
1: and was much more influential. I would say um, that's no, fair. Wiener did though, have
3: more
0: influence.
1: At least Wiener was in office when then he decided to go crazy. This guy not so much, but yeah, you know. Wiener and his wiener. All right, um,
0: moving on though, we have the big uh, train derailment situation. But but some recent development has happened on that. So Pratik, you want to take the story?
2: Yeah. So. In terms of the railroad derailment, so Trump visits Ohio train derailment site and victims, highlighting Biden's absence. So former President Donald Trump on Wednesday visited the site of a train derailment criticizing President Joe Biden's administration handling of the railway disaster that spewed toxic chemicals in East Palestine, Ohio, 19 days ago. Upon visiting the site, Trump said he thinks it is terrible that Biden has not yet visited the February 3rd derailment. The derailment of the Norfolk Southern train carrying toxic chemicals has become a political flashpoint. And Trump's decision to travel to East Palestine could be a major political win in the important purple state. Upon his trip, Trump coordinated the delivery of a thousand water bottles into the area with Trump logos on them. This is like one of his first campaign movements basically. And speaking about Joe Biden, um, local House Rep Bill Johnson, he's the U.S. House Rep from Ohio of that district, said leaders show up and he hasn't been here. And that this is sending a big signal to the community that the administration just doesn't care and that the message that they and, that, and that's the message that they are receiving. Trump told residents, you are not forgotten. We stand with you. We pray for you and we will stand with you and your fight to help ensure the accountability that you deserve. If they don't come back and give you the treatment that you need, we will come back, Trump said. East Palestine is in a county that voted overwhelmingly for Trump in the 2020 presidential election. Biden said Friday that he had no immediate plans to visit, but pointed out that administration officials were on the ground within two hours of the derailment. He claims to be in communication with Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and will provide further aid if needed. His transportation secretary Pete Buttigieg did visit the site when the tragedy took place, calling for stronger um, rail safety rules. While in town, Buttigieg said, one thing he can do is express support for reversing the deregulation that happened on his watch, referring to Trump. It is true that Trump reversed an Obama-era rule put in place that required trains carrying hazardous material to be retrofitted with electronically controlled braking systems. Although the Norfolk Southern train contained hazardous materials including vinyl chloride, it did not meet the Department of Transportation's narrow definition of a high hazard flammable unit train in that it did not have at least 70 cars carrying the flammable material such as crude oil or ethanol. The chemicals it was carrying fall into a different classification not included in this definition. The National Transportation Safety Board told PolitiFact that the Norfolk Southern train was categorized as a general merchandise train and it used mnemonic brakes or conventional air brakes. Um, Safety advocates have also said that DOT has been slow to respond and that it could have reinstated the rules when Biden became president, but didn't. So... What are your thoughts on this whole Ohio mess? I know Nick has a lot of stuff to say, but before we get to Nick, Tyler, and Jamie, what are your thoughts on the Ohio train derailment site?
0: So, I mean, clearly Nick is going to know most about this. Um, all I have to say is I think it's it's huge political win for Trump to show up here to make his statement. I think he's getting back on the national stage. It's a good, you know, Uh, opportunity for publicity i think he capitalized on it and that's good for him well joe joe biden of course was in ukraine um he's missing out on these domestic issues and i think that could be a hit against him in the near future
1: i don't think it's going to matter much in the long run but that's all I have to say jamie any thoughts i agree um i think that by trump going to the wreck or the train derailment is a huge boost for the uh, for the republican party not only in that part of the country but just in general because yeah biden's out over europe and you know meeting with our nato allies to discuss the war in ukraine obviously this is is important but him not making a president or making an acknowledgement of this incident is going to hurt him in the long run and the democratic party i think personally
2: so now nick what's your thoughts man
1: all right so i think the biggest value add i can provide here is
3: that it's not east palestine it's east palestine that's how it's pronounced oh, locally, know you know. If you're really in the that, know, yeah. so that's the that's the number one thing. Number two, I listened to a little bit of a town hall where there was some back and forth with local officials, and essentially, like the residents are totally fed up. You know, they would they they get news saying like, oh, what happened to this contaminated soil in the area? And um, the decision maker, the politician, would tell them oh, it's been trucked out. We've got at least two trucks full of this stuff. And, and one of the residents kind of challenged that and said, I haven't seen anything happen. Like, w- what actually has been done so far? And one of the regional uh, EPA administrators for the area, I forget if it was state EPA or if it was federal EPA, but in any case, she said like, hey, um, you know, that's just still on site for testing. It actually hasn't been moved. So all this stuff is a huge debacle. I mean, obviously, when Democrats are I- in power, that doesn't mean that environmental disasters aren't going to happen. Um, and in terms of what, you know, the interesting thing that you'll see online, again, Pratik brought it up in the, the intro to this, uh, but it's that the whole narrative is, look, Trump pulled this back. And I agree that it's not great that he pulled those back, given that we have all these chemical incidents. I think it's like an average of one every two days, something like that for the chemical spills. But in any case, regardless of that, it, it never would have applied in this instance, right? This is totally on Norfolk Sov- Southern. It is totally on that company. And whether or not they have good safety protocols, ultimately, that's going to bite them in the butt because they're going to be more liable in the future. That's the entire thing. This is going to turn into a massive lawsuit. Ultimately, the people who lose are going to be the residents. But I think given how much national attention this has been given, it's going to be another one like Flint, Michigan, where, for example, was it cost effective or economically effective to sort of start treating the water supply in that area? Absolutely not. The costs outweigh the benefits. However, when you have something this politically charged and so many residents impacted and you have the human element, obviously you can't ignore it. So really, like Jamie was saying, it's like Biden not being there is a bad look. You know, I can go ahead and criticize the Trump administration for laxing or or relaxing their environmental standards, their safety standards, pretty much everything across the board, everything they did in pursuit of cutting red tape to be good for business is ultimately going to come back and bite us in the butt when it comes to these environmental regulations. But that aside, this was a safety regulation. And he's showing up regardless of what impact he had on that, even though it wouldn't have applied. He shows up. He looks good in front of the camera. Residents believe him. And again, they voted overwhelmingly for Trump in this county. They wanted him to be in office. And so they're not going to blame him. They're not going to say, oh, look, this is all Trump's fault. But nationally, it gives Democrats some ammo to attack Trump. But again, Joe Biden not showing up. Bad look. Also, Pete Buttigieg showing up. Who the hell cares? Honestly, you know, you had all of the FAA stuff and the DOT stuff where, you know, after Southwest happened, you had FAA incompetence in terms of air traffic controllers. And then not long after, uh, Buttigieg was hit hit with another scandal. So Buttigieg is not doing too well. And it makes sense. I mean, Pratik, I'm really curious your thoughts on this, because you know, some some parts of the Democratic Party really see Buttigieg as, OK, look, he's going to play out his role as Dem- as uh, head of DOT, and then he's going to make another political run for office. This is sort of a stepping stone for him. And so I think if Republicans can hamstring him now and make him out, th- this is more about him than it is Joe Biden. I'm-, I'm sure for the general it'll happen. But this is like someone's future political career. If this is not handled adequately, which it probably won't be like it just what are your thoughts on Pete Buttigieg as a candidate And is he someone that Republicans should even be worried about?
2: So I think that currently in the current um, scheme of things, I really don't climb it. I really don't think that there's going to be that many candidates that run against Biden. So this wouldn't apply to him until four years later. Um, Another thing with Pete Buttigieg, too, is just the fact that before 2020, before 2016, when Donald Trump was in office, I can't tell you who the Department of Transportation chair was. I don't know who a lot of the other department of chair, uh, department of administrations were, but most people don't in our country. The fact is that whenever Trump came into office, these positions were heavily politicized. Everyone from Elaine Chao to Ben Carson, to like, you know, the, what is his name? Mike Pompeo, everybody knew who all these people were. Jeff Sessions, and now what has happened is that that's been this trend that has taken place since 2016. So I don't know how much of it impacted being a DOT chair, failure as a DOT chair really has, but I will say that it's probably more of an impact than it was prior to 2016, because since Trump came into office, now all of a sudden everybody's accountable for everyone. So now the other challenge that comes with this too is just the fact that, sure, Biden didn't come up, come to the, oh, did I answer your question by the way, Nick?
3: Oh yeah, you absolutely did.
2: Okay, okay, so now with this issue, Um, I think the fact that Biden didn't show up just kind of signals to those people that like, oh, we didn't vote for this guy. Now this guy doesn't really care about us. If Trump showed up. We voted for him. It's just a way that you know. It's just like semantics. In the end of the day, Biden didn't show up there. Question is: Would Biden have shown up there at this? At this county or had these people over here voted for him? That's another question mark. But I mean, that's this is something that would would be would have been said back in the day when Trump was in office. Is that oh something? Do we happened. really think that Trump though? didn't critique I mean, like uh, realistically?
3: I, I get that it's messaging,
2: think that. but it's, it's I, I think, yeah, it, it doesn't Nick, make so any sense. I don't think we think that from a mm-hmm. federal context. But if I was a resident of that area, if I was a resident of East, how do you say Palestine? Palestine. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then what I would say is those people really care about that. The fact is that that kind of stuff could be a local issue, but in the end of the day, it's a state issue. It's not a federal issue. It's a state issue. These are things that are potentially going to influence how Ohio votes in the next election because it is the feds. But the feds will be involved. And
3: Biden, as the president, does have to show up when something this bad happens. I agree with you, but I think he still does have time to actually show up. But immediately, it doesn't look good that Trump was there first, you know?
2: Yeah. And again, this is like one of those things where I still remember in 2011, I was remembering this. So, like, no, in 2012, whenever Hurricane Sandy happened. And at that time, Chris Christie was the governor of New Jersey, Hurricane Sandy happened, it was a big debacle, it was scary, and Chris Christie became a really well-known governor and very successful at the time because of how he handled Hurricane Sandy, but the fact that whenever Barack Obama came to visit him and when he hugged Barack Obama, that kind of killed his entire political ambitions, especially in the next come around in the 2016 election, just because that's what people thought about. That's like what people thought about whenever they thought about Chris Christie in the Republican primaries. And Chris Christie, I mean, sure, now he's like one of the Trump allies and now he's basically gone and nobody cares about him anymore. But at that time, Well, he also had Barack that day Obama where he knocked... closed
3: down the beach and went there with his family in Suntan. That's true, that's
2: true. And I guess <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. He I, there's did a lot of semantics. But my point is that at that time, Chris Christie's like political ambitions may have been hit, but that really helped Barack Obama in his twenty twelve in his twenty twelve election. This was like one of his big things that people remembered is because that was the most recent thing that happened. And at that time, Benghazi was going on. And then like, yo, it's like, oh, Benghazi's going on. Oh, Hurricane Sandy happened. Biden, uh, Obama was there. Okay, this is a good thing. I just think it's one of those things that, like, even if whatever political situation is going on, it makes more sense for the president to be there. And the fact that the president hasn't come there yet is just a negative hit on him more than anything. I don't think it's a national election impact, but it will have some impact on how Ohio votes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, like, regardless it, in, in the, the f-
0: short term.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was gonna say, regardless of the fact of who's in office, the fact that no one showed up at, a, at this scale of a disaster is, is mind boggling. I mean, you know. Trump showing up, you know that's great and all, and he was a former, you know, president and everything. But the fact that no one else showed up, you know that 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 is concerning. Um, at basically not only on a federal level but at, at a human, humanitarian level. And I actually wanted to ask you, Nick, a question about this. Um, I know you said that it, it is a safety issue or, or a safety incident, and yes, it was. But do you believe that this opens the books? for like the federal government to investigate the infrastructure of the United States, whether it's rail energy, uh, you know, just the infrastructure in general. I mean, our infrastructure, no offense is, is crap. I I can't sugarcoat it. So my question is, is do you think that this incident is going to open up the books for either the current president or the next president to do a massive infrastructure spending project to help something like this not happen again?
3: I mean, based on the, Fact that we already passed such large bills in terms of the IIJA uh, bill and others, I think infrastructure spending is on the up. But I think the bigger thing that's going to be brought up, at least, uh, I guess there's two things. One, um, to your to your question, in the general, absolutely, this this event could be used as a springboard to say, look, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time. These people are facing the consequences. We can't have something like this happen again. We need to invest in our national rail. Like, that is an easy talking point, I think. But in terms of how it's going to go in the primary for the Democrats, I think it's going to be very different. You know, before this happened, there was this big union negotiation going on where all the rail safety workers were saying, look, we are being worked too long hours. We cannot take time off. It is leading to unsafe conditions. And we want to re- renegotiate our contracts. And the Biden administration stepped in and basically said, shut up, get in line. You guys need to keep working. Like, just get over it, you know, which kind of goes against Biden's whole thing of being very pro-union. At the same time, it's like, wow. Wow. This would cost the economy so much money every single day that they were pretty much like, the way the federal government's always done it, if there's a major strike related to rail or energy or something else, they are going to step in and they are going to try to tell those workers, look, I hear your concerns, but you can't stop working. You got to keep doing this. We'll try to figure something out down the line, but you know, just just hold off on it. And the federal government's always had that position. So I just think, you know, to answer your question, one, on the national scale, absolutely something like this could be used as a talking point. But I think in the actual primary process, you know, I think it's an attack from the left that would end up happening where it's sort of Biden, this happened under your watch and it happened right after these union negotiations were a total mess and you got involved and basically told these workers who were having safety issues and concerns that they should just suck it up. I know that's not essentially I know that's not fully how it happened. Right. But that's sort of how I see it at least like the the party, the the left of the party um, communicating that about Biden's failure on this as well, not just the Republicans. I think he's going to get hit from both sides.
1: sides. Yeah, that would make sense, especially that, you know, he didn't show up or anything like that. But I, I would just hope that this leads to a massive uh, spending project within the United States well, for the well, infrastructure to update
0: Yeah, it. Here's the thing, and what we've learned on this podcast is we hope a lot of things. We hope, you know, when mass shootings happen, anything would happen. We hope all this stuff, but it never does happen, and that's kind of the that's politics. Of these political conversations. It's politics, <laughs> was, man. It's slow-moving. It's brutal. I was, was going to say, we did we have, have a once-in-a-lifetime
3: generation bill, though. I mean, that, um, whatchamacallit, it was like over a trillion dollars the that had sort of bill? been committed... Yeah, and and so it's yeah. just like a, a mind-boggling amount of funds have actually gone into infrastructure, but it's going to be years until we actually see the outcomes of that. So, you know, I I think there's already sort of been something to happen just in defense of the administration, I guess.
2: The private sector Did versus you guys- public sector debate maybe. <laughs> it's no. not even that
3: though, <laughs> dude. Both sides are all on board public private partnerships. That's I don't see a huge difference but yeah
0: it's yeah just so slow. last thing i w- last comment i, w- I want to make about this did you guys see the video of the epa administrator michael reagan and the governor mike oh D- yeah DeWine? sipping on water
3: yeah that was the sipping on the water yeah. they're like
0: it's safe to drink guys and they like pretended to drink the water from palestine so it's like oh man that's such a bad look yeah. they're trying their best but you got to do better you got to do better people yeah
3: especially for reagan where one of his big focuses being from north carolina is environmental justice communities and It's essentially like if you have disproportionate environmental impacts on a community, you know, the government should be fully in support of them. And there should be more funds going towards those communities that are most affected by um, air pollution, chemical waste, et cetera. And so if that's his whole platform and then he doesn't have an impressive showing here,
0: it's I don't know. It's just not a good look. It's not a good look. So moving on in Florida, Um, We have a bill that would give DeSantis more power over state universities to ban gender studies. So a new bill overhauling Florida universities to match Governor Ron DeSantis' vision for higher education would shift power at state schools into the hands of Republican leaders, political appointees, and ban gender studies as a field of study. The legislation filed this week would require that general election courses at state colleges and universities, quote, promote the values necessary to preserve the constitutional republic, and uh, prohibit general courses with a curriculum based on unproven theoretical or explanatory content. Um, The bill would put all hiring decisions in the hands of each university's board of trustees, a body selected entirely by the governor and his appointees, with input from the school's president. A board of trustees member could also call for the review of any faculty member's tenure. Um, This is a, a, a continuation of what we've seen about the battle in education, what should and shouldn't be taught i don't like the line of we can't teach a curriculum based on unproven theoretical or explanatory i mean how else do we progress our thinking than exploring categories we're not from fully certain of um not to say that we should be diving more into gender studies etc i'm not going to debate that right now but do you guys have any thoughts on this continuation of the battle in education
2: desantis so I mean usually I'm, I'm conservative on a lot of things but in this situation I think Ron DeSantis is on the wrong side of the board. I think this is a little bit too authoritarian. When it deals with certain policies like death penalty and things like that, I mean I have my, I, I can move a little bit to the right but and this kind of thing, I think um, schools and universities, just like any other business, should have the ability and the autonomy to make their own decisions when it deals with hiring. Well, I have a lot of constant though. complaint with Democrats whenever they start trying to control how businesses run or what what kind of cars a car manufacturer can like you know build things but like that. it's not that. a private always, institution critique. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is state. this yeah. isn't. I mean, this is a public institution. I get it, but at the same time, um, the fact is that this is a university. University should be allowed to make their own decisions they should be allowed to create their own curriculum they should be allowed to you know it's not like early education it's not like these this is like elementary school this is college and i feel like just the fact i even talked about this in like our inflation episode the things about when you talk about economics economics business finance all this stuff all that stuff is still like what most Republicans will be happy about if it's in the education system, because that's a lot of, you know, our bread and butter is we are from the financial side of things. I think what's important whenever you deal with that stuff is like economics is exploratory content. It's not like it's like necessarily like fact that, oh, this is the way this is because of this. It's all theoretical based. And it's like, you have the economics of different types of studies, you have health economics, you have like food economics, you have economics for every single type of study. And the fact is that it's all exploratory. So I disagree with what Ron DeSantis is doing, I think is a bit too authoritarian. I think the fact is that schools should have the ability to make their own hiring decisions they should be able to look at certain, um, you know, people by their credentials and decide this stuff, which I really don't think a board of trustees was has the capability of doing that kind of stuff. And also feel that certain, all, almost every single field that you can think of has unproven theoretical or exploratory content. There's no such thing as facts. Like sure, some math-based classes, yeah, that's facts. But even business-related classes, there's a lot of theories involved. And I think that's almost every single study that you look at. So I just think that this kind of stuff is stupid they the uh, desantis shouldn't be engaging in this kind of things it should just be allowed for the school to have autonomy in making those decisions my thoughts
0: so uh, yeah i I agree um does anyone else want to jump in before i go i know i introduced it
3: i after you go tyler i would love to hear if it's good politics though because i think that's where we can separate it out we can all personally disagree with this but i think at the Mm -hmm. end of the day if this is going to solidify the amount of people voting for him then you know i get it
0: yeah and i I think that's a good point, and we have to recognize why he's doing – let's try to defend his side a little bit. It's pretty common knowledge that many professors, many administrative staff in universities are very left-leaning, sometimes even on the socialist, Marxist end of things. So if you're a Republican, that's what you see in these universities. You see an ideological battle going on over the future of this country, how people think in terms of what are their values and their ethics and all that. And you see that and you go – what i mean this is just chaos this is not sustainable this shouldn't be what we're teaching our future generations for them to be successful so we need to better guide them in their decisions we can't let these marxist socialist professors professors and staff just dictate whatever they want teach whatever they want because they're influencing the minds the the great minds of our next generation we can't allow that to happen so i think you're right in terms of political points It makes sense. If I'm a hardcore Republican, I'm very against these left-leaning universities. I don't want to see that at all. Now, personally, when I see this, I don't want the state to dictate what, what they're teaching. I actually have no problem with gender studies and all of that. The problem I have is, you know, funding or having our government fund people to get certain degrees. I have an issue with that when I don't see them being as practical. But I have no issue with them just teaching these things. Education is to learn more about the world. It's to explore different concepts and theories. And do I want my stupid politicians to dictate what I'm allowed to learn? They can go fuck themselves. Especially DeSantis, and like, and we talked about <laughs> last week. You're like the death penalty. This guy wanted to remove jurors' ability to prevent the death penalty for people. That's a straight up
2: authoritarian move. Well, after like, that's they make worse a decision, that America. that whole thing is a little bit is a little bit odd too because the he, way he I introduced phrased it, it. I mean, he wants but, it. What, what he was saying there, and again, I'll, let me defend him here because I criticized the hell out of DeSantis in this one, is that in that situation, there would be a panel of judges that decide, and let's say there's seven out of 10 judges that decide that they should uh, you know, initiate the death penalty for someone that committed a crime. What he was saying is that those three people that disagree, even they should get on board because it's majority the way that the storyline was wrapped around it i kind of messed it up and tried to make it a little bit more biased maybe toward the left side but my whole argument what i was trying to say there is a little bit different well in this case i agree with you i'm just saying that that case was a little bit different because usually you always have a majority of jurors whatever the majority says is the way it happens that's life nice
0: uh, um jamie any thoughts before we move to Nick?
1: um <sighs>
2: You the went to university.
0: Is, you you know about this. I mean, you gotta have some. Yeah,
1: and I, I went to I went to a private university, and I will say I had a I had maybe like one or two college professors where I feel like that they put their beliefs more so in front of the school curriculum, their and, agenda, yeah. opinions. Yeah, or their agenda. Yeah, their agenda first before the school curriculum, and you know it varies. You know, some people you know might have good good reasoning you know they might their agenda might actually seem right and then there are some where their agendas are way out of proportion would you be okay with the state much.
0: determining that i guess is the real question the
1: the real uh see no because i think personally if you are going for me like i i think that that's a bad idea i think it's up to the student to take that person's agenda and look at it and and dissect it and see What's right? What's wrong? What's blasphemy and what are they like, you know, screaming out to the heavens, you know, that should be done versus what, you know, honestly should be done. I think it comes down more to the student more so than anything. The state shouldn't get involved. The student should have the intelligence to make their own decision of do I want to believe this teacher's agenda or not.
2: So one yeah, thing I, I, I wanted to agree. ask Nick before Nick goes to so what you've seen in many of these states, especially there are states that are more red leaning, is the fact that the opposite stuff happens where the state itself um, with no there's, there's like a Democrat in office. They want certain things to happen to influence how those schools are run. So they will initiate certain things to have more control over the school's curriculums, whether it's well, a local, specific. state, what do you know, like yeah. I'm talking about, especially at high schools, and elementary schools, middle schools, but even some colleges. So if you have certain Christian colleges, or if you have some colleges that are leaning more right, there's a lot of laws that are in place. I think it's like section eight, some uh, section 11, some kind of section like that, that it's like mandates that if the government is providing you aid and funding to operate, then they're gonna have some decision-making skills on what you're allowed to teach in the curriculum and what you need to teach in terms of what's mandatory. So I just wanted to ask like, do you think that does that influence anything in your opinions and just lay out your opinions you can just add that at the end
3: sure so well why don't i just address it up front i don't have a fully formed opinion on this stuff yet because it's i think look like tyler sort of brought up um i guess i would agree like personally uh, in terms of gender studies or women's studies I mean, it's only been a thing for like fifty years. Like this, this is really new, right? Um, and I get that it's gotten into the I- ideological battle of, oh, these, you know, these professors are indoctrinating our children at college with their Marxism, and you know, it's all downhill from here. Um, I-, I get how that's how the party has sort of, you know, shaped itself over the years. And there's a very anti-intellectual bend to all of this, and it's sort of, you know, the universities are eroding away at, you know, these traditional American values and our country going forward is going to be a worse place if we don't step in and start to amend the curriculums where they've just gotten out of control and it's just getting into indoctrination. I I, I get that that's the narrative. Do I fully agree with that? Not really. I don't know. I would like to think that most people aren't stupid enough to just show up and be like, oh, wow, my professor said this thing, Wow, I'm gonna believe that and just not think critically about it whatsoever. But I would say have a little bit like more that, faith in people. Yeah. But but the thing is they they like teach critical I, thinking. I think people like too, <laughs> <laughs> do, man. All right, all right, all right, all right. So I think the bigger question is the one that you've all touched on, right? Which is like, what is the state's role in providing education towards people, and what should funding be based on what those educational resources are? For example, to Tyler's point. You know, you would ideally want your state funds to be going to something that's sort of concrete and what have you. But at the same time, when I look at, for example, personally, like uh, Boston Public School System, a school system that I'm personally a little bit more familiar with, like one of the things you would see is that the school system, when they were facing budget cuts, which they faced all the time, it would sort of say, OK, look, we are only going to focus on math and science. We are going to cut any extracurriculars. So essentially, it's like all the sports, arts, all the things that actually make school enjoyable or at least made school enjoyable to me. Like that's like all of that is gone in some of these districts. And I totally get that we should emphasize things that that are concrete and what have you. But to Pradeek's point, yeah, like economics as a field was not viewed as super concrete. Like if if you listen to Milton Friedman say a bunch of stuff, you're going to have a very different outlook on things compared to someone like Robert Reich. And why is that? It's not even the data itself. It's just like the the theoretical frameworks around which you're um, interrogating the subject matter. And so part of that, I think, like Tyler, you mentioned, could be extended broadly. And that's a little worrisome. But at the same time, like, I get it. Like, for example, to go to the other extreme, if, you know, someone was in a university and they were teaching that you should just genocide a group of people. And, you know, that was a class that was paid for by taxpayers. I don't think anyone would be happy about that. They would be like, oh, my God, that's uh, that's not OK. You know, we shouldn't be funding this. So I, I get that you, you know, and the entire point of an education is to sort of broaden your thinking, get better about how you think, improve your critical thinking skills and actually gain some skills, for example, whether that's engineering, computer science or if it's something more on the biology side where again it's just all memorization or what have you like i don't know i this is a very rambly way of saying that like i don't know what that balance is between the state funding certain educational outcomes and uh, and others for example should the state only fund like plumbers or electricians or something that's like super super practical or should they be allowed to fund things that, like, basically, like, where do you draw the line? I have no idea. I don't think anyone
2: does. One thing from the last conversation we had about student loan forgiveness and the bankruptcy stuff, I was thinking about this. Maybe one thing that they can do to potentially improve the system is look at GPAs in high school. I just feel like if you're gonna give loans to people, um, shouldn't just no. give loans based so, on so other factors. You so should also look
0: at. Here's that. the deal. Yeah. Some schools are much more difficult than other schools, so the whole. Like someone in Missouri that's at a random school and they have like 30 kids in their class and they get a 4.0, it's different than someone that goes to like a very difficult, you know, it's like, there's it really, mean, again, it's GPA. a different factor.
2: Usually Poor their Missouri, factor bro. is, what Tyler is their income level? Right? Poor <laughs> Missouri. Look, no, but what we, I'm we're saying talking is the, the educational system, system there. in place, <laughs> there's a lot of flaws with the system. The system doesn't look at any credentials. It doesn't look at how you've done in school. It doesn't look at any of the other stuff. It looks at but two it does. things. What do you mean, It looks at socioeconomic background and it looks at how much income you have. If you don't have the level of income.
3: Oh, you're saying for determining loans.
2: Loans. Then they're going to help you get a college loan. Most other, all other factors don't really look at socioeconomic background. They just look at if you have the money, if you have the collateral, if you have credit history, and then you receive or don't receive a loan. Well, in this situation, that's not the case because literally the education loans are literally the most predatory loans there are because there isn't any credit history backing the individual to show if they're going to be able to pay it back or not. So I'm just saying this could be a potential other aspect because let's say the child, let's say the kid, whenever he was in high school, had like a 2.0 GPA. Well, then that could be an indicator of how he might perform in college if he gets in. I like to say he. I feel like girls perform better than guys in literally all academic fields. But in terms of, you know, in terms of students, whenever they're like graduating high school and entering college, I do think that that could be a potential other thing. But again, this context i just think is a political win for DeSantis and the republican side and it could potentially it win, impact yeah. how he does but in terms of just the semantics of it oh yeah and so Tyler, go on your rant before i like cut you off i apologize
0: yeah where do i want to take this um yeah i know nick's i know you mentioned like what about like philosophy degrees I, for instance like psychology as a field was seen as heresy before it became a scientific discipline and i also think there's a difference between academic thought and the pushing of a field and getting more knowledge and like practical um, utility of that knowledge for instance like some people are diving deep into the theory and others are trying to apply it Um, so I, I personally think that it is important I think philosophy is very important I think we should focus on that I honestly think this whole situation funnily enough comes because of our educated population I think we have so many people that have been able to attend college that we have a lot more free thinkers than we had in the past and you may think that's a great thing, but at the same time, that means we have less people doing these practical crafts, let's say, being a plumber, uh, being doing these things that don't necessarily require a higher degree, but are very important for society. So you have a lot of people who think they have very nuanced, strong opinions in all these fields, when the reality is not everyone has a great opinion, and <laughs> and and we're kind of suffering the consequences of that. But does that mean we shouldn't allow people to learn that? No, but... Going to your point, Nick, we're talking about the funding of these educations. I personally feel, especially if you're in a lower socioeconomic class, you should be given nearly free education, but your options shouldn't be super vast. Some
3: of that is self-selected, though, right? Because you'll see low-income candidates typically will basically say, like, oh, wow, I would love to study journalism, but that's not practical. That's not going to make me money. So they kind of push themselves into things like engineering, computer science, other – yeah
0: i'm not saying it's a perfect thing i'm just saying it's the it's the it's the, be- it's the best way we know of to get you out of a bad situation. To know a hard tool, hard, hard skill. That's right, but aren't you effectively
3: then barring those people to say like, oh, you're too poor to learn about philosophy. No, no, no. Like, well, it's oh, not you're that. Too poor to no, do no, no.
0: Like, if you can afford, I to know pay better for, than you. You, you. you need it. to
3: invest in this type of degree.
0: We're, we're talking about state funding, though. Right. Like, that's state what I'm saying. can't simply fund everyone's whims and wishes and whatever they want to learn. Like that's just not. It's as not as a it's practical system. I'm trying to find a balance of people being able to study these fields at the same time everyone should be educated and how do we find how do we strike that balance to me again just teaching hard skills it's like you're gonna make money from this and you wouldn't have gotten education otherwise because you couldn't have afforded it and this is the best we could do as a nation right now and that's just that think, that's kind of my best solution but it's not a good solution i'd agree
2: i have it's another food for thought with. on this too is that I also feel like it's a problem with their system in general, especially their education system that propounds certain things. So like, why do you have to go to undergrad in order to become a lawyer? Why can't I just go into college and study to be a lawyer? Why do I have We're to, next to Europe Europe place place. move to Mexico? No, 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 Europe, but listen, okay? listen to what I'm <laughs> saying. <but listen laughs> do what I'm that. saying. Yeah. Four years, you're going to waste time doing nothing. You're going to study something random to become a lawyer. Instead, well, a you could has just value, a but a okay. I think same thing with medical school. Why do you have to study biology or chemistry or some other random study if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be like some kind of like, you know, dermatologist or neurosurgeon or something, not necessarily like certain doctors dealing with like that are pharmacists for chemistry. But my point is that why do you have to go through all those studies? Why can't you just study what you want to study? It is just a way for colleges to make money and milk you and make you pay more. That's all it is. I mean, there's no benefit to me getting undergrad stu- getting undergrad and learning about some liberal arts thing, about some class dealing with history of the 1700s. No, there is if benefit. I am studying I to become a doctor, I just up for law. You can, like history is... what, I'm, what I'm arguing, what I'm arguing is that sure you can do it if you want to do it. My point is that you shouldn't be required to do it. You should be allowed to just study what you want to study, and you shouldn't have to go to some higher level graduate degree in order to achieve what you're doing. Because if anything, that's just making it more expensive on you. If you're poor and you want to be a doctor, well, sucks for you. You're gonna to have to go to school for four years as undergrad. Then you're gonna to have to go to medical school. Apply there. Gonna to have to study for as many years for that particular degree that you want. Then you gotta perform residency, and then after all those years are done, then you might become a doctor it's just is a whole well, stupid pre med's not useless people. i
0: know people that were in pre-med sorry but, i know Jamie well, but
2: my point say, with my <laughs> point with medical school though is just that that's a field where it's like if there is anything dealing with practicality i wish i was able to be a doctor this stuff boring to me but my point is that in terms of practicality that's the one degree that's like you're gonna help a lot more people than anything else Doctor, like, Sorry,
3: I have a football game today. Plumbers. I'm just not interested, but let's bring Jamie in. I know he's been trying. Okay. To...
2: Sorry, sorry, sorry. So just real quick
1: with that, uh, and I'm going to throw a wrench in everything here. But if it's not to the state funding, then why not we just overhaul the entire infrastructure of the college education system after high school? You know, have the state funding say, hey, we'll fund, you know, the practical jobs like plumbing, electrician, um, you know, pipe, uh, pipe makers and stuff like that, you know. And then everything else. Man, you're right. Going to philosophy, women's <laughs> studies. Wait, yeah, Jamie, I mean, you want... Jamie, Did
0: you? Um, so, are, would you say you have a hard, like your job's like a hard, like fire science, like what you're doing right now? Did it require the the college degree?
1: Um. Yes, for for certain parts of my field, I have to have a college degree and uh, some other credentials. Was it to useful be where I am? for you? In my field, yes. Okay. But you know, but for the average person, that's not like, oh, I want to dive strictly into mechanical engineering or fire science and stuff like that. They just want to get a general undergrad study and then go from there. I think that you know the state should help a little bit, but at the same time, it, the people have these ambitious and dreams, like you said, Tyler. And you know, there's got to be a reality check at some point. You know. It, it, you know, I could be like, oh, I want to get a master's in philosophy, get a master's in philosophy and not end up with anything. And now I'm 250K in the hole and I don't have anything to go with it. So and then and then the state looks at that. It's like, well, that investment on that person, you know, flopped belly up. And, you know, it's to the point where it's like maybe it's not the funding that needs to be looked at, but maybe the school structure itself. You know, you know, really breaking it down and saying the state funding should focus more on like the trade schools and the practical jobs you know, undergrad and regular colleges, you know, it's there, but, you know, you have to give a definitive degree and a definitive reason behind, you know, getting that yeah, the and, funding. And to add that. to
0: that argument, and this is going to go against what Nick was saying before a little bit, and I'd like to hear his response. But when you're funding these pra- like practical jobs, etc., one of the hardest parts about life is that not every generation, like in a family, let's say, is going to be – like you kind of have to – the way families work – Ideally, is you're building upon itself over time, so you're becoming more successful, and with each subsequent generation, you're doing better for yourself. So, the idea is not that these people don't deserve to have these certain educations. It's that w- when necessity calls for you to to make a certain amount of money, so your kids can get that education, that's a sacrifice people have to make. And that's not I, I don't want. It sounds so awful to say like oh, you can't do this because X, Y, Z, but unfortunately there are limited resources in this world and in education and we can only do so much so that's a sacrifice people have to make and if you have to be a carpenter and maybe that maybe you didn't want to be a carpenter maybe you wanted to be a political scientist or something but that just wasn't in the cards hopefully you can provide that for your kids moving forward and like life's not fair things aren't fair they're limited resources this is the best solution i can at least think of and i think jamie kind of echoed that in what he said nick do you have a response
3: No, I don't really have a rebuttal. I mean, look, we've, I think, covered a lot on this. Education is something you could talk about for ages and ages. Like Jamie said earlier, if our infrastructure has all these issues and then, man, now we want people to actually work these jobs to build the infrastructure, you know, some of that expertise, frankly, just isn't even here. For example, something that I'm a bit more knowledgeable about, um, the energy sector. If you look at electricity, for example, like the United States say for one plant in Georgia, Plant Vogel, which has cost about $10.4 billion in construction costs so far and has been a total overrun and is a huge issue. Um, we haven't built any new nuclear plants, for example. And like, if you were going to go and say like, oh yeah, you know, no particular likes to talk about this. Like, let's go build a new nuclear plant in the United States. You know, people, people should like that. You know, d- Do we really even have the expertise to build them? No, not really. Like, that is just grayed out and decayed
0: i was just gonna say shouldn't state shouldn't shouldn't state funding be directed to where what what is of most interest to our national security especially at a minimum like that's where i want to see funds going in terms of education if we're trying to subsidize something why not subsidize that but i was gonna but say like, for that one
3: it, yeah. like the de- the market demand wasn't there for it so if you said as the state like oh it's very important that people have the technical know-how to build these reactors and yet yeah, there's just, just zero getting, market you know, demand it's like you know, to what extent should you really be anticipating that demand and to what extent should the state f- purely be focused on these infrastructure projects or the blue collar jobs as opposed to, you know, developing any other sort of intellectual capital?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, too. Like, eventually, at the current rate we're going, we're not going to have the skilled engineers and the skilled electricians and mechanical people. Well, we import all that. our engineers. I, I <laughs> that's mean, I know, the one yeah, thing we I do mean, well. H-1B visas. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Dude, yeah, know, exactly. I tell you
0: everyone I work with is on a visa. It's crazy.
1: Like yeah, I mean, see we're going to import them, but yeah, then then that also then hits our national security you know we're importing all these engineers and then all of a sudden you know the project's done they have all this knowledge they decide to go back we're to their already way past that point i mean yeah. all, most I, of the engineers yeah. in america are yeah. that's, <laughs> that's, right. that's what uh, was all the about. best example but
3: yeah to jamie's point yeah there is a shortage of electricians there is a shortage of plumbers like these are jobs that are not going away anytime soon you know people always espouse welding because it pays well but i don't know part of it is like for me not everyone's going to be a welder. <laughs> I get how we would want to funnel our money in these very practical skills, but I don't know. End of the day, I don't know how much the state should purely say, like, this is the only offering we have for education, and if you want anything beyond this, just, you know, I, I just don't know. I think the broader thing, of course, is the federal loan system, and as we've talked about many times on the show, it doesn't seem like it's going to be reformed anytime soon. There's a lot of issues nope. with it, and... Yeah, for this Florida thing, I guess we got way, way off course of it. But just so, like within the state, <laughs> what are they allowed to teach? I think that's something you saw in Virginia with Yunkin when he won the election. It was sort of parental choice in the school system. That was one of the things that he ran on in Virginia. And this is something that San- Santis, uh, or not Sant. yeah. I almost said You're Santos or so DeSantis. It. DeSantis yeah. um, is picking up on. And you see that in other states as well, where Republicans are really going, because it's been the broad narrative that the Marxists are taking over, We got to fight back. And for DeSantis to do this, I think, just sort of, you know, shores up his base to say, oh, look, we put you in office. You're actually doing something about this. And if he does decide to run for president, he can say, I made this change in Florida. I got it done. Vote for me. I can do the same thing nationally.
2: Well, speaking of multiple options, because Nick said something about options that you get when you're in college, The whole political spiel going on is dealing with the Republican primary debates, what's going to happen in the future, who's going to run, and that's part of the story, and deals with DeSantis too, because he's leading in all the one-on-one races for the most part, or at least many of them, when it's dealing with just him and Trump. However, apart from him having those one-on-one wins, when a larger pool of contestants, when there's more contestants that are running in the Republican primary poll, Trump's winning by a mile. He's still yet to lose a primary where he's not, there's like multiple candidates if there's like six or seven that run, even if there's only Nikki Haley and Mike Pence. So that's sort of the story. So... DeSantis leads Trump in many polls, one is one-on-one with no other candidates in the poll, while Trump has been overwhelmingly leading with other candidates, including former Governor Nikki Haley, who's already declared to run in this next election. In Nikki Haley's official campaign announcement, she called for politicians age 75 and older, which would would include the current President Joe Biden and Donald Trump, to be subjected to mental uh, competency tests. Haley is polling around 4% less than Mike Pence at 8%, but higher than all the other minor candidates in most polling data that we've seen. So this is interesting. I was curious to see what y'all thought about this. Again, if you look at the Democratic primary polls, and again, I love these polls, is that in general, duh, what is it? Joe Biden has been winning overwhelmingly in every single poll that he's been in. And then Kamala Harris is the number two, and then there's a bunch of other random people. Well, in the Republican side, it's Trump and DeSantis. They're off and on. But in the end of the day, when it's a bunch of people, Trump's number one.
3: Jamie is the guest. Everyone's heard what we've had to say on this. Jamie, would love to hear your thoughts on kind of who you see between Trump, DeSantis, Biden, others. Like, who for you seems to be, you know, the the standout for this next run? the The
1: The standout right now, for me, it's probably Trump. I mean... I didn't. I didn't think I would be saying this, but once he made his appearance at the the train derailment, it just goes to show that he will do whatever it takes to put the American people first. And he and that was his platform in 2020. You know that he was, you know, going to put America first. And I mean, not I'm not 2020. Sorry, in his first election campaign, 2016. Thank you. He was going to put the American people first. He had the best interests of the American people. And you know, he's not even in office. And He's already doing that, and he's just getting the brownie points that he needs to start his election for 2024, and I think he's going to stand out in the crowd right now. I mean, obviously, everyone's got different opinions, but that's my personal opinion. What do you think of DeSantis? Yeah, he's, um, on the fence still. I still got to do a little bit more research and, and focus on him.
0: So in terms of Trump, I think he – to your point, he's, in a, he's a genius PR man. He's an amazing marketer he's when he sees this Palestine uh, situation he capitalizes like that he sees the fact that Biden isn't going to be there he's gonna be there he sees how the American people are gonna understand that and see that and how it's gonna they're gonna portray him like again he's the one of the best marketing PR people have ever seen and I think that's why he's so good at campaigning I don't think he's the best administrator um, operator I think he's just amazing at painting a picture and getting people to rally behind that image which is why I think Trump always, he always stands a chance. Even if you even if you he think he's out, he's not fully out. Because the man, he, he captures people's attention. And that's a big part of politics. Um, DeSantis, I mean, we were talking about DeSantis before. I'm starting to lean away towards him hearing about this education thing. And I know the death penalty thing wasn't as severe as we talked about. Still something to keep in mind. Um, but you had also mentioned that Nikki Haley... Came out, she's running. I I do like Nikki Haley. She needs more time to develop. I don't think she has the national national presidents yet to really be a a formal challenger at this point. Maybe she will eventually, maybe she'll concede and side with Trump or DeSantis. I don't know. But her calling for politicians age 75 or older to be subjected to a mental competence competency test is a very smart move. Um, it's one of the big conversations in in our country where all our leaders seem to be so old and out of touch and part of a generation that really is on the way out. And people want to see fresher faces, and they don't want to see these people in office anymore. Uh, in general, I will say, in each jurisdiction, they love their old congressmen and senators. But in terms of a national scale, I think in general, people don't like these super old people in office. So her coming out and saying that, I do think it's a powerful message. I hope it will be receptive. But we all know who votes. It's older people. And do they
2: want to take that into account? I don't know. Prateek? And one thing i would say is, I mean, I always hype on these polls. They make fun of me on the show all the time. I'm consistent on this. I look at polls because I think that's the best scientific indicator on how a group of voters are feeling. And the fact is, it's we don't have to. It's too theoretical.
3: DeSantis would ban you
2: what i'm saying is <laughs> all right that's fair but what i'm You're saying is that in terms of in terms of any ter- other type of scientific data there's really no other way for us to know how other people are feeling other than polls so i just think that even if the polling polls? is not done always you know? perfectly even if it doesn't indicate everything perfectly is the best we have to work with so the reason i always bring that up though is too is like when we see these things, I do think that DeSantis is going to have some shot. Everyone that I have spoken to as a Republican voter, even if Trump's their number one, DeSantis, everybody likes him. And like, I don't like DeSantis that much because I think he's a little bit too, Muslim, too socially conservative for my taste. But my point is that in the end of the day, I don't really think DeS- if, if Trump was out of this race, DeSantis would win by a mile. I just think that these are the only two rational, realistic contestants right now until the debates happen. I remember last time in 2015 when the debate happened before it was like Jeb Bush and Scott Walker going at it. And then it was like Donald Trump came in the race and everybody else was like not important anymore for like the rest. Of he the shines
0: election. in those debates. So the
2: yeah. point is that in these kind of contexts, I just think that. Polling data is the best indicator that we have, and even if polls are not perfect, it signals two things right now that Joe Biden is like the clear upfront winner if there was an election to happen right now based on polling data. And he's like the number one in all the Democratic primary polls as well. But on the flip side, it's a real contestant race between Trump and DeSantis. I think things are gonna shift, but the more and more people that get added, and Romney said this too, which I found interesting. It's like the more and more people that get added in this race, the higher odds are that Trump's gonna win. So it's like if anything Republicans if they don't want Trump they don't want need to run they need like DeSantis to run and they may like get like one or two other contestants, but they really need to prevent how many candidates run. Because if it's anything like 2016 or 2020, where Dems had like 27 people and De- Republicans had 16, I really don't think it's even a competition because the more and more people you add, it's like Trump is the parent front runner. And at the same time, like I don't think Biden is Biden would be the first president to sit down and not run for a second election since like James K. Polk, who was her 12th president of the united states so like do you think
3: it's the republican establishment is going to get behind critique for example in this trump, quinnipiac poll here because you know you've, you've mm-hmm. got the numbers here and the, the numbers yeah. are Old man everything but um exactly. so it says trump anything? and DeSantis head-to-head that um republican leaning voters are split trump 43 percent DeSantis 41 percent but that in a hypothetical hypothetical general election matchup it's a toss-up where president biden would win at 48 percent compared to trump at 46 percent among registered voters but that desantis would beat biden by one percent so just wanted to get your thoughts on that like mm-hmm. if republican you know strategists are sort of seeing oh desantis may be more favorable do you think they're gonna kind of throw in with him it depends but, I, I mean granted once trump's on the stage obviously as we've all said he's yeah. going to command attention but off, yeah. you yeah. know do you think the party establishment is going to get behind desantis as the way to win
2: it depends on how many contestants are on the board. It all these things are about numbers. It's not like there's Republican strategists that like Trump or Desantis or anybody else more. Well, they just want to win. Yeah, what do you? They <laughs> just want to win. Okay. They're looking at it from a winning basis, right? So they're yeah. like looking at it. How are we going to beat the Democrats? They really don't care who's the face that they put on the cover. They just care that the face that they put on the cover Dude, wins. Dude, are you ultimately. about to say the president so, is a dot? Oh. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I'm saying in terms of strategists on how these strategists work is that they're going to, if it depends on how many people run, if Trump has like 10 other candidates that run against him, then they're going to be more wary on who they're going to support until there's like two or three contestants left. If there's not that many candidates that run, and let's say it's just Trump, DeSantis, Pence, and Haley, Because that seems like that's like the four consensus that we think you're going to run because Nikki Haley's already declared and Trump is in the race. I just think that in terms of those four candidates, they will wait. They all we all know as a whole that Pence and Haley don't really hold a chance against the other two. But those are potential vice presidential candidates. Ironically, Trump's not going to choose Mike Pence again. But he was his former vice president. But the fact is that it's like how many people are in the race? If there's two people in the race, then if it's Trump and DeSantis and it seems like DeSantis, this is an edge over, um, you know, Biden over Trump does, then they'll support DeSantis. But if it's like if that's not the case and it's like four people to the end, I don't think that they're going to make a decision until uh, somebody is chosen at the end. I think it's all like they're playing their own cards. They don't want to piss off anybody and they want all the DeSantis, Trump, Haley, Pence, anybody else that runs voters to vote for whoever the candidate is select in the end. That's like how strategists look at things. I think with the Biden administration side, Dems are lucky. If Biden runs, Biden will win. Biden has a higher odds of winning. Incumbents generally don't lose unless there's like a pandemic 2.0 that happens or let's say the world blows up with a nuclear bomb. Like unless something crazy happens, Biden has a huge chance of winning this election. No other Democrat has that capability of doing that. So if Democrats are smart, based on poll numbers and based on polling data, Biden will run again. Unless Biden decides to step down and then is going to be a horseshoe race on their end too. But I think if Biden runs, there's not going to be many people that run against him, if any.
0: Hmm. I, you know, it's interesting. I think um, people might be afraid that Trump wouldn't handle the international conflicts that are fast approaching us with the kind of, I don't know, respect. I don't know what what other words. But he he
2: will handle um, inflation. I That's think people question, see Biden right? as a
0: better leader on the international stage in wartime and i think we've always shown throughout history that we coalesce around our current leaders during wartime and i don't think especially after you know trump being very isolationist people are going to want that and i understand inflation is probably a bigger issue but i'm curious to hear people's opinions about you know trump's international well, stuff but anyways oh, tyler okay. briefly yeah, yeah. i was just going to let you
3: have the Final word, you and Jamie, and then close. But I have to say, for the wartime stuff, I'm not so sure I'd agree. For example, one of the reasons why Carter was kicked out of office was because of his handling of the Cold War at that time with the Iran hostage crisis. Like, that. I get that he was the president and that we were in this, you know, geopolitical competition with the Soviet Union. But even though he was in, you know, that that precedent wasn't enough for him to stay in office. So I just wanted to say there are a few exceptions. But I can see that that's broadly the rule.
0: Hmm. But you don't, but would you also agree that Trump isn't the, like on the international stage, he's not the most stable? Like when we're going against China, going against Russia, these are active conflicts, not it, like in twenty sixteen where we were, we were people, all talk Tyler. and rhetoric.
2: It varies. It varies with people. There's no, people that are younger don't necessarily like Trump as much, even Republicans. It's like a mix whenever it deals with younger voters. But overall, the consensus among older people, especially young older people, don't vote for Older Republicans and older moderates, for the most part, the consensus is that if something like Ukraine was to happen, it may have not happened if Trump was there. That's like a theory. We don't know if that's true. That's a theory. The theory is that Trump is like seen as like that big stick policy guy where it's like you're going my way or the highway and if you don't go my way, I'm going to mess things up for you. That's the way that many of these old Republicans and many of these moderates that are on the fence look at Trump. And that's part of what gave him an edge over some of these other people. It's just that, you know, all these other people are cookie cutter politicians. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. Trump's just going to say something bombastic out of nowhere and people are like, wow, he just says how he feels. Like that's That's the way people look at Trump. <laughs> And I think that is his was his selling point. That is his selling point. And I don't necessarily think that there if we look at it in terms of a war, if certain things are happening, that's gonna change with those people. For younger people, sure. We don't I don't necessarily see that. I don't think most Republicans really like Trump that much. I don't think Democrat, Democrats hate Trump with a passion in general. And I think the more and more younger you get, you hate him more. I just think that in terms of like the overall consensus on the people that actually vote, because they're not in our age group. It's Trump as that moderate edge to him because he's like more liberal than all the other Republicans. And at the same time, he's that guy that's just, you know, seen as somebody that's going to be willing to do whatever it takes to make something happen and prevent something, which they argue that the Ukraine war may have happened because Biden is seen more as a wimpy person. But at the end of the day, that's not, That's is a bad outlook of looking at things because I think that he's done a decent job at Ukraine. I'm just, my argument is that's just the way a lot of older people look at it.
0: Yeah, it definitely could Such be. Such a and- good way hey. to tie it back
3: to how we started yeah. with Ukraine. Jamie, to bring in the final word on this, you know, kind of getting your thoughts on the whole situation. Plus, I mean, Pratik did mention Ukraine. Uh, how do you sort of see this playing out in the next? election and just your thoughts in general on what the three of us have sort of been batting back and Yeah,
1: <laughs> so if it does come down to trump and biden because right now I, I could have a, I have a clearer picture of one of the two of them gets elected if trump gets elected you're gonna see him do his usual um you know political talks on on tv where he just calls out like North Korea like he he just called out Kim Jong-un basically called him the dog man and all this other crap you're going to hear that again um I also do believe if Trump does get into office he's going to focus more on the inflation and the American economy and he's not going to focus on the war of Ukraine and overseas so you're going to see that isolation come back and you know and then if that does happen then we might actually see how the other players around the world are going to actually you know um act upon the war and the global crisis that's going on right now now if biden gets back into office and gets reelected, um, it's going to still be the same inflation is still going to be going up they're going to be trying to fight it but i don't think biden is more focused on that i think he's more focused about the overseas um issues going on right now so you know the war in ukraine will continue we will continue to supply them and train their troops and it's just going to be the status quo that's been going on for the past couple of months if biden gets elected in 2024 so yeah I'm sorry, go ahead, Tyler. Do you guys think Trump will call
0: out Putin finally? Because he's literally never done that ever? I don't think like, so. Like they're, with this conflict too... going on, has he said anything about Putin? No, how, he hasn't. Uh, or the is that? war. Isn't that come on, isn't that pretty wild? The fact that a leading presidential candidate hasn't really spoken ill of the Russians uh, or Putin specifically invading Ukraine? Like that's kind of, to me that's a bit shocking.
1: What do you guys think? I just real quick, I think it's shocking that trump has not acknowledged or mentioned anything about the situation overseas and well, you know he, he might have they, spoken
0: to the war i don't know but specifically putin I, i'm not you
1: know right but i mean just put him and putin when they were in office they were pretty close Supposedly. you know it, it seemed like you know we were getting along i think and then obviously now that, that it changed and but, that's
2: another part of my original context which i said is that whenever you think of these older people that vote they would argue that Putin and Trump had some decent relationship. So the fact is that Putin may have never even engaged in war or attacked Ukraine had Trump still been in office. He may have done look other what things, happened in North Korea. but that's something that they would argue about.
0: Yeah, but in North I'm not, Korea, I'm not saying he's same, right or wrong. Th- I'm just saying that's yeah, the yeah, way of perspective you. on to how them, to look at things. Sure. To, to them, I would say with Kim Jong-un, he had the same rapport. They were great buddies. And then they're still, well, nukes. Kim they're still doing everything they were doing before. So I don't know if it was Trump, exactly. Trump
2: has Trump has said a yeah, lot it, of negative stuff about Kim Jong It's him trying to Kim befriend Jong-un a leader.
0: Too. So I don't think these world leaders are going off with, whether they're friends Jamie's or not point, with Trump. With That's Jamie's
2: point, he's trying to say that like Trump hasn't said anything about Putin negative but he said a lot of things about Kim Jong-un that were negative too. He called him the angry man, the orange man. He's made fun (laughs) of him on Twitter. He's done a lot of different things, which to that credit, he hasn't said much on Putin. It could be a negative thing. It could be a positive thing. More than likely, to most moderate voters, it will look as a negative thing. To most Republican people, they might not care. And to Democrats, they're going to be pissed about it. But that's just the way that it is.
3: The cynical a pro, or my cynical answer to that would be the difference between North Korea and Russia for Trump is that you know Trump didn't have these closed door meetings without any translators or when he did have the translator he basically took the the transcript from it and it wasn't released anywhere sort of breaking with the president where he did have that one on one meeting with Putin in Europe and that was sort of reported on broadly as oh my god this is going against Tradition, that's sort of like, ah, you know, how buddy buddy is it? I mean, the conspiratorial stuff, which I don't fully buy, but the conspiratorial stuff, which is fun to talk about, frankly, is like, you know, Trump doesn't have business dealings in North Korea, but he has business dealings in Russia. And the assumption is that Putin has dirt on him, and that's part of it. And so, again, I don't think that's accurate, but it's a little fun to talk about. I won't talk about it too much, but essentially saying, like, He actually and to be fair, like relations between the United States and Russia are far more normalized, far more normalized between the United States, Russia, China, Iran, anyone else. North Korea is like the one state that the United States just doesn't have any real formal relations with. Like we're not meeting with them on a regular basis. Trump would meet and any U.S. president would meet with the head of Russia, head of China, head of Iran, whoever. Right. But North Korea is that one rogue state where we just we just don't really have an engagement policy.
2: And the whole, the concept that you can argue with the Trump-Russia narrative is the fact that Trump had a lot of interest in China. He still has interest in China, but the one thing you could take away from Trump's presidency was he was pretty anti-China. That's mm-hmm. like the one thing that every Republican and Democrat can get behind. If anything, right. that was one of the things that Democrats were freaked out about was the tariff war, which hurt people like us more than it hurt most other regular people because we're the people that the are buying farmers. stuff from China. <laughs> Who's caring about the soybean farmers, <laughs> goddamn
0: it!
1: Yeah, right? Damn those soybean farmers. What have they done for us? <laughs> this has been
0: our longest show ever. But anyways, I just want to
1: thank Jamie for joining
0: us today. We appreciate you joining the conversation, adding some commentary. Um, appreciate, of course, my other co-host, Nick pratik Thank you guys for joining. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, we will, of course, catch you next week on Politico- Politicana 120. Thanks for later. coming
1: on, Jamie. Thank you guys for letting me go on. Thank you.